the more and more that people delve into these puzzles, it's almost like there's some hidden hand guiding them in different directions and, as I said, weird coincidences and bizarre synchronicities begin to happen. This is Tim Benall of BenallofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 3. It is December 30th, 2007. We are just about ready to close the book on 07. And we've got the perfect guest to end what has been a great year here on BOA Audio. Our guest is the hugely popular and tremendously prolific author, Nick Redfern. And even better, this is a very long interview. We go about two hours, and we cover everything, pretty much, my friends. We're going to be discussing Nick's latest book, Memoirs of a Monster Hunter. A lot of the questions stem from that, and then go off on a lot of really cool side tangents. We're going to get Nick's thoughts on what's behind esoteric phenomena, ufology as a whole, the deification of Roswell, his fieldwork in Texas and Puerto Rico, the Chupacabra, Bigfoot, Ghost Lights, UFOs, the Loch Ness Monster, Alien Big Cats, Crop Circles, the UK Esoteric Scene, and tons and tons more. Just about everything esoteric but the kitchen sink. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Nick Redfern, I'll catch you up to date. I'm going to give you the bio. Nick Redfern started his writing career as an 18-year-old in 1982 on a British-based music, fashion, and entertainment magazine called Zero. His interest in UFOs was prompted by his father, who worked on radar with the British Royal Air Force, and who was personally aware of several UFO encounters investigated by the British government in the 1950s. Nick is the author of several books on unsolved mysteries and UFOs, including A Covert Agenda, The FBI Files, Cosmic Crashes, Strange Secrets, co-authored with Andy Roberts, Three Men Seeking Monsters, Body Snatchers in the Desert, On the Trail of the Saucer Spies, Celebrity Secrets, Monkey Man, and Memoirs of a Monster Hunter. He has written for UFO Magazine, Fortean Times, Fate Magazine, and the British Daily Express newspaper. He has spent weeks chasing the vampire-like chupacabras in Puerto Rico for the Sci-Fi Channel and Canada's Space Channel, roamed around the old base at Roswell, New Mexico, in search of decaying, smelly alien corpses, tried to conjure up tulpa-style thought forms of Bigfoot, lycanthropes, and lake monsters in his home country of England, and was once less than politely turned away from the fringes of Area 51 by a fat and humorless security guard. His website is www.nickredfern.com, all one word, nickredfern.com. So, without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on December 5th, 2007. Nick Redfern, talking about Memoirs of a Monster Hunter, on BOA Audio, Season 3. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a very special edition of Been All of America Audio. Uh, we have a great guest here coming back on the show now for the second time, our second sit-down full-length interview. This is actually, he's 
stands with uh, Jim Mars and Stan Friedman now as the only guy to be on all three seasons of Been All of America Audio. Already a superstar, and I think he'll end up becoming an icon in the world of uh, the esoteric. He's the author of A Covert Agenda, The FBI Files, Cosmic Crashes, Strange Secrets, Three Men Seeking Monsters, Body Snatchers in the Desert, On the Trail of the Saucer Spies, Celebrity Secrets, Monkey Man, and he's also the author of the new book, Memoirs of a Monster Hunter, A Five-Year Journey in Search of the Unknown. Of course, he is Nick Redfern. Nick, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you here. Hey, Jim. Thanks for the introduction. How's it going? <laughs> I can't complain. Um, <laughs> we got you back on the show. I'm excited. Um, well, I guess, uh, you know, I, we, we already had you on the show, but I suppose we should just do, let's do the little bio background for people who don't know who Nick Redfern is and, and bring him up to date and that kind of stuff. Uh, I'm hesitant to do it because we've had you on the show before, but there's always new listeners. So uh, okay. let's introduce you to them. Just sort of background, how I got interested, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, just a little, you know, a little biographical sketch. Well, I mean, I've always sort of been interested in, I guess, what you would call weird stuff since I was a, a kid, really. I, when I was about four years old or young, um, I went to Loch Ness with my parents, um, went to, on holiday to Scotland, and they took me there, and uh, I sort of got just a, you know, sort of a couple of vague, fragmentary memories left of going. I can just sort of vaguely remember sort of standing on the, shore, on the shore and my dad telling me this story. And so, you know, from in that respect, that got me interested, I guess, in, you know, monsters, so to speak. Now, coincidentally, my dad was in the British Royal and he worked on radar. He was involved in several incidents in the early 1950s where weird objects were tracked on the radar scopes. Nobody knew what these things were, flying very high and fast over the North Sea and the English Channel. And pilots were scrambled to try and intercept these things, couldn't get close to them, and at the end of the day, everybody was uh, reminded of the fact that they'd signed the British government's Official Secrets Act and warned not to talk about this incident. So I guess, you know, it was like a sort of a two-pronged attack. You know, I got exposed to the cryptozoological angle of things and also UFOs, and when I finished my education, uh, such as it was at least. <laughs> um, I, went to, <laughs> I went to work for um, a rock music, fashion and entertainment magazine in England called Zero. And I enjoyed, I wasn't really sure what I was going to do after I left school. You know, I just sort of wandered around aimlessly for a while. Mm -hmm. and, but then found that I enjoyed doing the writing and, you know, magazine work and layouts. And then over time I thought, well, you know, can I combine this interest in the paranormal with the freelance writing and magazine work? And that's really what I tried to do, and I guess it sort of spiraled from there, really. Nice, nice. And now the new book, as I said, is Memoirs of a Monster Hunter, mm -hmm. Five-Year Journey in Search of the Unknown. I guess to start out, it's really – it is a memoir, which is exciting for me because I really enjoy the, the personal side of, of Esoterica, the people who are involved mm -hmm. in it and their stories, and you have a lot of great stories in there that you just wouldn't get from a straight book like profiling a specific mystery. You know what I mean? Mm, I mean, yeah. this is like the personal stuff. It's great. And I enjoyed it a lot. I highly recommend okay. it to people who want to get an idea of what it's like to be someone in this field, to be Nick Redfern and the kind of stuff that, that, that falls into his lap here over the course of five years. The first sort of jumping off point is just that the book is pretty personal. You talk about meeting your wife. Um, and he moved to America, and a lot of stuff like uh, on the personal side, not just the mysteries. Um, you know, mm. also the story about uh, you guys' dog passing away. I guess what made you decide to go in that direction and share so much of of your personal life in the book? 
Well, part of what it came down to, Tim, was that the, I've written three books on cryptozoology, the memoirs book, Three Men Seeking Monsters, and one, as you said, the Man Monkey book. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Three Men Seeking Monsters and the Man Monkey were both written in the same theme as memoirs, in the sense of like a first-person, on-the-road type story. Yeah. And the, the main reason why I did that is because, you know, if you're investigating something like UFOs, it's more sort of very more like a sterile thing. Of you're either sitting in a government archive, um, or you're just interviewing a witness about something they saw in the sky, and it doesn't really lend itself to you know like an on-the-road investigation. Yeah. Whereas something like going to a specific place like a you know Loch Ness or Puerto Rico, looking for the Chupacabras and hacking your way through the rainforests, that does lend itself to sort of an on-the-road description, potentially. So that's really the reason why, you know, I tend to write the crypto books and specifically as well memoirs in this sort of on the road personal fashion because, you know, that's the way you do it. You jump on the plane and you hack your way through the jungle, so to speak. Yeah. Um, you know, it isn't just a case of getting the people's stories. It's, you know, getting to these exotic locations and finding them and interviewing them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, th- I sort of felt that whereas three men finished with me in England, um, you know, to sort of get some explanation across to the readers to why I suddenly popped up in America and doing all these American investigations, um, you know, set the scene with how I came over and why I came over. Not from, you know, an egotistical perspective of wanting to talk about myself, yeah. but, but to get across to the reader that this was like a five-year odyssey of traveling around investigating weirdness and, you know, setting the scene and then building it up, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Totally, yeah. Just from my, like, I've done, like, maybe 1% of what, of what you've done in, in the world of the esoteric, and I can definitely say that some of the best stuff sometimes has nothing to do with the esoteric. You know, it's like you're yeah. there at the conference, and, you know, something amazing will happen that has nothing to do with it. You know what I mean? So it, it's Yeah, really yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. I guess your wife was cool with you putting her in the book and everything, right? Was, or was <laughs> yeah. this something that she made you do? Oh, no. Um, <laughs> oh, she, actually did, she actually didn't see what I'd written until the, <laughs> the book was published. So uh, I kind of kept it as a surprise from her. No, I hid the manuscript and um, embedded it deeply on the computer somewhere. So. Nice, nice. <laughs> so it was untraceable. <laughs> um, and then I guess I want to start here on on one big picture sort of observation that you mm. that you point out in the book, and uh, I want you to sort of extrapolate on that. And uh, I'll just read the sentence here because it's it's really well. For starters, it's really well written, and, and uh, I don't know if I could put it in the right words, so I'll just uh, read it out here. You say. I had come to the conclusion that Bigfoot, aliens, lake monsters, and a plethora of other diabolical things, that's in quotes, were all in reality nothing but ingeniously crafted smoke screens and projected imagery behind which devilishly cunning and devious creatures operated in stealth within our environment. And like I said, that's beautifully written. I, like, I wouldn't have been able to, I would have been like, little guys behind the smoke screen. So what made you sort of come to that conclusion and, and maybe mm. flesh that out a little bit so people can kind of wrap their minds around that concept. Yeah, sure. Um, well, basically, you know, I think like a lot of people, when I first got interested in, in these types of things, you know, when I was a teenager, for the most part, when I seriously began like, subscribing to newsletters and magazines and things like that, you know, I think it was more sort of black and white, but UFOs were alien spaceships, uh, Bigfoot was this giant ape, late monsters were still surviving dinosaurs, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But the thing that I've found, and, you know, I'm quite happy to debate with people who consider, you know, this 
or their views are different to mine. Um, you know, it's not, I'm not dogmatic about it, but what I found is that the more you dig into these subjects, it's not that things like Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster are weird. It's almost like they're, they're too weird yeah. in the sense that nobody catches these things. There's a lot of stories of people, people trying to photograph these creatures and the cameras jam or the pictures don't come out. Um, or other weird phenomena is reported in the same time frame and same location. A lot of reports, for example, where Bigfoot's been seen and strange balls of light have been seen flying around. And particularly in England, you get a lot of reports of weird animals, um, very much similar to ones in America, like Bigfoot, but there's no way a Bigfoot creature or a colony of them could exist in England. It's just not big enough. Yeah. Yet people see these things. But what's interesting is a lot of the British reports surface around old stone circles and ancient burial mounds and places like that. So, you know, if these were just normal flesh and blood animals, I think we'd be seeing them at random and we'd have had a far better chance of catching them. But there's certain specific archetypes like the hairy men, the lake monsters, the big cats, the old black dog stories, and these weird, what I call winged things like the mothman or the owl man in England and these giant birds. We never seem to catch them. And it seems similar with the UFO subject that it remains elusive and intangible and it's always ever-changing you know first it was flying saucers and long-haired blonde contactee aliens then it was aliens taking soil samples then abductions then the gray surface then flying triangles it's like it's constantly mutating even back to things like the mystery airships to the ghost rockets to the foo fighters you know in a hundred years the whole phenomenon has just massively altered and continues to and one of the things that particularly interests me um, are things that are known as tulpas, and tulpas basically are thought forms or what you might call mind monsters. The idea is that the human mind can conjure up imagery, and if the the idea or the thought is intense and powerful enough, you can actually externalize this thing and kind of give birth to you know what you would term a mind monster that can have some sort of semblance of existence and reality. And I think some of these things could be that, and that they feed upon human emotion for their, I guess, their sustenance. It's a controversial theory, but the, the Tolpa ones, one that goes back throughout recorded history, you know, this idea that if you concentrate on something for long enough, an imagery, that, you know, it actually can be externalized. Yeah. Now, but with the Tolpa, it's more like the person sort of does it themselves. Are you saying that, that that's the case with the paranormal elements too, or do you think well, it's like the – it's just in the same sort of like family, if you will, of like, you know, a thought form that's taken on a physical Yeah, I think that's, that's probably a better way of putting it because I, although I think some fall into that category, I think other ones could be, you know, in simplistic terms, some sort of like an interdimensional thing. You know, I've sort of come more and more around to that point of view with the UFO angle. Um, you know, that these things aren't coming from planet X or planet B. But, yeah. you know, perhaps they coexist with us in some fashion. And maybe they've even used kind of like the alien motif to, to mask or camouflage their real origins. I think that's a possibility. So I think that, you know, we have the Tolper angle. We have something that's perhaps not what it appears to be, but that, you know, manipulates us and uses us in things like abductions for reasons really that, you know, might not be to our advantage, you know, despite the fact a lot of people think these entities are here to help us. I mean, there's no real proof of that, that they've actually done anything that in any way has, that we've benefited from. So, uh, you know, I think we need to keep our guard up and realize that all these weird 
flesh and blood things, 3D things that we see out there may not be completely what they appear to be at first glance. Yeah. That point of view about sort of like tying all these things together is, is mm. a growing, I guess you could say, uh, point of view now in the field of the paranormal. Yeah, that's one of the interesting things that, again, a lot of cryptozoologists are very sort of loath to delve into these so-called crossover cases that have UFO links, and people in the UFO field are sort of notoriously careful about staying away from stories where somebody said they saw a UFO land and Bigfoot got out or whatever, mm -hmm. because, you know, you have the, the credibility factor there as well, which I understand. But, you know, you can find countless cases where there are these crossover angles, and because so many people are reluctant to stand by these reports, they they very often remain underreported. I mean, one classic example um, that's featured in the book is a place called the Big Thicket, which is a large forested area in East Texas, which I've been to several times. And from the Big Thicket, you get a lot of reports of so-called Bigfoot and wild man of the woods type encounters. But you also get a lot of weird sightings of so-called balls of light and ghost lights zipping through the woods. And again, this is something we get time and time again where you know, as I said, you have what I call these crossover cases where different phenomena that would appear to be at first glance completely separate seem to come together. Now, you know, somewhere I think there's a, a common denominator. Another classic example, which actually isn't in the books, but it's a story that came to me about two months ago, uh, was an English story how a guy investigated a crop circle, actually... Um, went towards this crop circle to you know, measure it and check it out and so on. And as he went close towards it and got within about 50 feet, this large black cat reared up like a, like a classic puma. Oh, wow. So again, you know, you've got another scenario in England where you have a lot of these tales of these so-called ABCs, the, the alien big cats, appearing in another unexplained phenomena type situation, notably a, a crop circle. So again, you know, these are all pointers, for me at least, that... You know, we're not seeing the full picture that there's, there's something else going on. It's not as simplistic as UFOs, Big Cats, Bigfoot. There's, there's more to it somewhere. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, the recent the recent press about Skinwalker Ranch really kind of uh, crystallized that to a lot of people in the paranormal field who weren't ready to look at it yet. I think that sort of story really opened a lot of eyes that, you know, maybe, there, maybe there's a tie-in here. Well, I think one of the problems is, and this isn't a criticism as such, it's just an observation, is that a lot of people in the UFO subject what I tend to call like the old school, who've been in it since the 50s and so on, mm -hmm. they're very much of a mindset of like, you know, Donald Kehoe, um, you know, the early researchers who, it's all nuts and bolts, aliens are coming, government's hiding the secrets, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And I think there's either not so much a conscious reluctance, but there's this mindset that that's what's going on. And it could well be that that is what's going on. But I think... You know, we need to sort of embrace the fact that there are, as you said, more esoteric angles to this in terms of when you look at it and, you know, don't dismiss the the weirder evidence because it doesn't necessarily fit in with your preconceived beliefs. Just go with the flow and see where it all leads. And I think, you know, there is this tendency on the part of a lot of people, particularly in the UFO subject, to want to kind of hang on to this idea of, Aliens coming down, taking soil samples and abducting people because their race is dying and they need our DNA, you know, the standard scenario. But then you look back in history and you have things like um, incubus and succubus abductions and, and cases, which are sort of classic 
500-year-old parallels to today's abduction stories and, you know, people reporting encounters and abductions by fairies where they go to the fairy kingdom and when they come back, you know, two days has gone by, like classic missing time. Mm -hmm. Yet, the, again, the phenomena is clearly linked, but it somehow changes or manipulates us over time. To sort of move on to like the next point, I guess, you say in the book uh, you were being interviewed for a magazine piece or something like that in Texas and that you enjoy doing these sort of like localized interviews because they bring you more leads and more stories mm -hmm. from people. The sort of logical question is like how many, how do you follow up on these? How do you sift through this kind mm -hmm. of information when you get people contacting you? Um, you know, how do you sort of, you know, separate the wheat from the chaff when it comes to people that want to tell you their story, if you will? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I mean, obviously, from the logistical perspective, if they're local, then, you know, I always do my best to go and see them in person because I think, you know, you have to, in a subject like this, you have to be a, ju a good judge of character if you can. Mm -hmm. And I don't think there's really sort of any better way of doing that than sitting opposite someone and, you know, understanding their body language. Do they look you in the eye? Do they contradict themselves? Do they seem credible? That sort of thing. There are other times, you know, when people a country the size of America, you know, you're on the other side of the country and you just there's just no way you can meet up with them. You just have to listen to their story. And I always try and, you know, ask, was there anybody else with you? Do you have any photographic evidence, anything like that? Um, other times, you know, people relate accounts and they say, yeah, you can use the story, but don't ever use my name. So, you know, it's kind of like the several different angles and where you can go so far with some stories and so far with another. And, you know, you have to, I think, when obviously there's no proof, you know, there's no sort of a Bigfoot body or anything like that, we just have to go a lot of times with our gut instincts. And I think, you know, I think I'm a fairly good judge of character when it comes to, you know, assessing whether someone's genuine or not. And, you know, I'd have to say that, yeah, like everybody in the subject, there have been a couple of cases where I'm pretty sure somebody tried to hoax me. But I think for the most part, practically everybody is is genuine in, that I've spoken to and that, you know, they're just genuinely interested in trying to understand whatever this puzzling thing was they saw and, and looking to get answers from someone who, who might be able to help them. And would you say uh, the sort of leads and stories you get are, are they mostly UFO or mostly cryptozoology or, you know, other stuff mm -hmm. or, you know, is there any sort of thing that stands out as being particularly like the most you hear about? I would say... Um, it used to be UFOs, but it's probably more cryptozoology now. And that may be, but I think that's possibly just due to the fact that I've done more crypto stuff in, in the recent last few years. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I tend to find when I do radio shows or TV, or, you know, I've written something in a magazine article, it, the the feedback tends to reflect the subject matter of the article, Yeah, uh, broadly at least. So, um, but again, you know, that's, that's kind of understandable, but... Um, insane that sometimes you'll get something just out of the blue that takes you off at a complete tangent. So. The next thing I wanted to ask you about was this trip you took uh, with some other Bigfoot researchers and stuff in Texas and you saw the oh. ghost light. Talk a little yeah. bit about the ghost light sighting you had and um, I was wondering why the, you said in the, in the story that you took a good picture of it but I, there wasn't any picture in the book of, from what I could tell, there was a picture of the road but um, yeah, I don't think that was the, it, but I figured maybe it didn't translate well to the book, so it's hard to get a picture in. Yeah, that actually is the one. The Unfortunately, oh, the, the photographs aren't that marvelous, unfortunately, that are they reproduced in the book. Yeah. Um, now, there's, I think it's, I've got the book right here, actually. And um, the, the basic story um, is that there's this place in Texas I just touched upon called The Big Thicket. 
and it's a large forest um, east Texas you know I think a lot of people imagine Texas as just being this huge desert I mean I, I certainly did before I came over I thought it was just like something out of a, a John Wayne film or something like that you know not realizing that I guess that's more you know for the for the for the western movies and things <laughs> like that and um you know to actually find that a lot of Texas on the east side at least is is very very thick forest was a surprise but down in southeast Texas, you have this big forested area, the big thicket, and going back for quite literally hundreds of years, there have been reports of hairy wild men, wild men of the woods, Bigfoot-type creatures, for want of a better term. And a friend of mine named Rob Riggs wrote a book about this called In the Big Thicket, which um, covers a lot of these stories. And in 2005, um, myself, Rob, Paul Devereux, who's a British researcher and a couple of other people, um, we travelled down to this particular area that's become known as Ghost Road. It's actually called Bragg Road, but it runs right through the big thicket and goes on for about six or seven miles. And this is the one location more than any other where the not only have these wild men or hairy men been seen, but these small... Um, balls of light that are anywhere from about the size of a golf ball up to, I would say, something like a basketball or, or a little bit bigger. And the the point of the expedition was really to sort of camp out for two nights and two days and see what we could find in terms of, of any sort of evidence. Now, you know, when you go down there, for the most part, and, you know, when I've been on investigations, the I think the most frustrating thing is that you get a lot of stories from other people, but it's very, very rarely, if indeed ever, mm -hmm. you actually see something yourself. You know, it's, it's one of these things where it seems the researchers are the ones that hardly ever seem to actually come across the evidence for themselves. But on the, the first night we were out there, in the early hours of the morning, we'd parked up on, on Bragg Road, and bear in mind, of course, that when you're deep in the woods, there's no light pollution, there's no sort of big towns around, and certainly when you're in the middle of the woods, you know, there's no street lamps, no car lights on or anything. So you've got a, a really sort of clear, good view of the sky without any pollution at all. And just for a fraction of, se of a second, um, as we were literally walking through the woods, I just caught sight of this um, small light in the sky. Well, not actually in the sky. It was actually, I would say, about 40 feet up. And it's, it's in the book. It's on page 167. And for people who've got the book, you can just see um, on the road, in the middle of the road, the people walking along. And then there's like a light directly above the last person, which in terms of the, the book, at least, it's about an inch up on the page. Now, the original photograph is a lot clearer. And I think I've got it posted to one of my blogs. Um, and there's no doubt that whatever this was, you know, it wasn't like a firefly you know, reflecting in the light. This was this was a substantial size thing. I would say uh, at least um, the size of something like a baseball and bigger than that even. Um, again, what it was, I have no idea. But again, this was sort of like a weird angle, if you like, of what turned out to be a, a ghost light slash Bigfoot investigation where there seemed to be a combination of both things present in one in the same area so i think you know th this kind of hits home even further that what's go whatever's going on is far stranger than it seems to uh, appear to be in the first place shall we say yeah definitely uh one part of that same weekend that i wanted to ask you about uh is uh, one of the people who was on the trip is named renee uh she had sort of like a like a terror right? let's just say panic attack i guess you could say because uh, there was like a bigfoot around she thought or she heard something and it sort of in, induced feelings of terror within her. And you say 
that uh, you sort of had a similar incident like that in, in England in 2001. Well, so it sounds like this is a recurring theme with the Bigfoot. Yeah, this is one of the interesting things about um, mystery animals. And when I talk about this so-called tulpa phenomenon, now, as I said, tulpas are the idea that, you know, you create something out of the human mind and you project it outwardly and it has some sort of semblance of reality. And the idea with the tulpa is that it, it feeds on extreme human emotions in the same way we, you know, we eat food. This thing literally extracts human emotion, high stress uh, environments, that sort of thing. And this is one of the interesting things about a lot of these crypto reports is that when people either see these creatures or they sense they're around, it's not kind of like a panic or a fear that, you know, you're going to get attacked by a bear. It's almost as if whatever these things are, they kind of have the ability to, to elevate uh, fear levels or uh, stress levels. Um, I can think of several cases. A friend of mine, John Downs, um, who investigated a British Bigfoot-type case in early 2002, he was out in the woods where this weird sort of seven-foot-tall hairy creature had been seen and reported how his electric, electrical equipment all started to fail. And he had this weird feeling like a you know, for people who suffer panic attacks, I imagine that must be what it's like. It's just like a feeling of fear came over him for no reason. Mm -hmm. And then, lo and behold, this, this creature, whatever it was, was loomed out of the shadows for five or six seconds, ran to one side and was gone. And he described it as being almost like one-dimensional, like a shadow almost, but shaped like a sort of like a giant gorilla or something like that. And this is something that happened in the, the big thicket case that, um, that I mentioned, that one of the uh, women who was with us, she had this feeling that there was some sort of creature in the woods and there were you know, sounds of heavy footsteps, etc. And this feeling of overwhelming panic came over her. And, you know, when you have that, as you mentioned, in Australia, then you have it in America and you have it in England, and all these stories are connected with induced feelings of panic, and then these creatures appear, to me, that is pretty strong, excuse me, I wouldn't say evidence, but intriguing data suggesting that these are tulpa-like phenomena, elevating our emotions and then literally feeding on them like an emotional vampire, which is the, the classic description of the tulpa. Absolutely. There's something really interesting about that, and it, it really adds a whole other dimension to the, to the whole mystery. I was just going to say, there's actually a crossover that some people have noticed with alien abduction accounts. You know, people have said, well, you look at a lot of abduction stories and the aliens tell the people, or they show them images of like atomic bombs going off and the world being destroyed and things like that. And, you know, people have surmised that, well, that's because they're trying to warn us what our future might be. But, you know, a number of people have said, well, maybe they're actually doing that to induce high stress and high emotion states in the abductee so they can feed on them as well. You know, that, that's another angle, another way of looking at that's why we're being manipulated, possibly. Yeah, I never really... You know, maybe we're actually that. being abducted because we're literally being farmed. Our emotions are being farmed, if you like. So. That's some heady stuff. I never even thought mm. about that, but that makes a lot yeah. of sense. And, and, uh, and to sort of dive into the world of ufology here, one of the most fascinating parts about um, memoirs is your, your take on the whole backlash from within ufology to your book, Body Snatchers in the Desert. <laughs> Uh, we kind of had a laugh about it in the last interview because um, you had just released the book about um, mm. On the Trail of the Saucer Spies, and I, I think I asked you if it was a make-good to the, to the people in ufology. 
after, <laughs> after Body Snatchers. And we really didn't talk too much at, at that point about, about this backlash, but you really dig into it here in the book. And as someone who loves to look at the world of ufology, you know, from just outside and look mm. at the players in the field and how, you know, how they all interact and stuff, mm -hmm. oh, man, I loved it. Talk a little bit about that backlash um, mm. that, that went on in with, within ufology at you uh, with regards to Body Snatchers. All right. Well, basically, for people who, who do know or don't know, uh, a quick summary, Body Snatchers was a book I had published in 2005, which was a study of the Roswell story based upon various accounts given to me by five or six old-timers from the both American and British intelligence community who said that the Roswell story was actually based around classified balloon experiments using Japanese prisoners of war, and that several of these experiments had gone wrong, these huge balloon arrays with that were being used for high-altitude exposure experiments and cosmic ray experiments went wrong. The flights and the balloons crashed off range. And in a worst-case scenario, what happened was that in several cases, the members of the public got there before the military and then all these rumors about weird materials and small bodies and crashed UFOs began to surface. And so what I did was to put the story out there for people to see. And, you know, I think a lot of people thought that I changed my views on ufology as a whole. You know, I was like reincarnated Phil Class or something like <laughs> that, which actually wasn't the case. You know, for the most part, my, my views on the fact that something weird's going on and that we have some sort of unknown presence amongst us, that's never changed. I think what the problem was is that for a lot of people, it's become impossible to separate Roswell from the overall UFO mystery. Mm -hmm. And what I always say to people is that, you know, there are thousands of very, very strong UFO cases. And I think the UFO community is in danger of kind of like putting all its eggs in one basket and elevating Roswell to like the holy grail. And then if it collapses, for many people, ufology collapses, and that, that isn't the case. You know, even if you take away Roswell, there are countless good reports that something weird's going on. Mm -hmm. um, yet people were saying, oh, he's trying to destroy ufology or he's bringing down the Holy Grail. Well, the whole point is there shouldn't be a Holy Grail of ufology. There should be a collective body which we try and analyze and come to some conclusion. Um, so I put the book out, became the bad guy of ufology for a year or two, um, without people, you know, even asking the question, well, you know, have your views changed overall? No, they haven't. It was just this one case. And, you know, if people ask me, is it possible you were fed this information? You know, I always say yes. Um, there's no way, uh, you know, I'm not able to say I wasn't. I could have been lied to. That's the point. The whole point was to put the story out there because for whatever reason, it's either true or it's disinformation. Somebody considers Roswell important enough to put this story out, if you see what I mean. Yeah. So quite clearly something happened. Um, now, as you mentioned with respect to the backlash, it was basically sort of the typical things that you get in ufology. Oh, he's been paid a million dollars to destroy Rod, which is why I live in like a, a two-bedroom, <laughs> a little two-room apartment on the third floor. Um, you know, and... Uh, that, that was one of the things we put forward. Oh, he's been paid off by the government. Another one was, you know, he's been deceived and he's fallen for it. Um, you know, I would never say, even if I'd been deceived, that I fell for it. I, th I think I put the story out in a fashion that told people what I was told, and I put it out to say, hey, can we take it any further? Not from the perspective of being some sort of wide-eyed 
person who was just, you know, listening to everything that was said to me and just yeah. fashioning it back, so to speak. But the other angle was, you know, that I was actively in cahoots with everybody from the Bilderbergers to the Illuminati <laughs> and, you know, just about every bad guy you could think of. Um, and, I mean, it didn't really, it, it wasn't sort of that, um, there was nothing sinister about it, but it was just the usual stuff and conferences, people whispering on the other side of the room, and there he is, you know, the traitor in our midst, obviously. And um, I got a lot of weird emails. Um, I won't say the F word on air, but a few of them cont <laughs> contained it. And, um, you know, saying I was an idiot and for falling for this story and how can you believe this and you've damaged ufology, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I always say, you know, joking aside, I always say to people, the one thing we need to remember about the UFO subject is that regardless of what we think's going on, regardless of how passionate we are about all the different theories, we always have to remember that the U in UFO still stands for unidentified. You know, as a community, we don't have an alien we can parade before the press, before Fox News or CNN or anybody like the BBC. You know, we're still looking for the answers. Maybe somebody on the inside has the answers, but we don't. And until we know, you know, I don't think we should get too tied down with endorsing this or that without really knowing. And I think that's why we need to put all the evidence out, even if some of the evidence isn't what some people want to hear. You know, that's too, that's too bad. The worst thing we can do is just file information away in a cabinet somewhere because we don't agree with it. That's as bad as the government hiding stuff because they don't want us to know about it. Um, so, you know, I, I took a chance. I put the story out. I published it. Um, I got the typical bad guy stuff. Some people understood why I was doing it. Other people who were more open-minded said, yeah, you know, we need to look at whether there were sort of dark and dubious experiments going on in New Mexico at that time with the Operation Paperclip, people coming over from Nazi Germany, etc., in this same time period. Um, and, you know, as I said, it was typical scenarios, men in black type things being paid off, and yeah. people whispering around in the dark <laughs> at conferences, and, uh, you know, I just took it in my stride, and that's ufology. There you go, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and one of the things that you said, uh, like you ran into a couple of researchers, and you name them in the book, but I'm not going to get into that. People can buy the book to find out who you were talk <laughs> who we're talking about. They, uh, they were like, oh, Nick, it's so sad that you fell for this. It's sort of like, a, like they felt bad for you, mm. like they thought that you had fallen for something. Uh, and knowing your perspective on the story, and we had talked about it before, and, mm. and uh, so when I was reading the book, I had in mind what you had just said about, about why you did the book. And it's kind of like you wonder – if people are just like they just don't want to hear what might fall outside of their comfort zone, you know what I mean? And then and then yeah. as, a, as a sort of like self-preservation thing, they're like, I would I wouldn't be fooled for that, you know what I mean? Instead mm. of just being like, hey, maybe I should look at this. Yeah, yeah, I think that does happen. I mean, if you talk about sort of the prime Roswell researchers, people like Stan Friedman and Kevin Randall, you know, I have a lot of lot of respect for them, and I know that their belief that you know something extraterrestrial crashed at Roswell is based upon the fact that they spent, you know, exhaustive hours, time, money, etc., passionately researching this and coming to that conclusion based on their analysis of the evidence. You know, I have no problem with that at all. Where, what I have a problem with is that, there, you know, there are people in the field who, but I'm not talking about actually people even in, who I mentioned in the book. I'm just talking in general. There are people who the UFO subject is, becomes like a belief system for mm -hmm. them. And, you know, I can understand that. But I think if it becomes a belief system to where you're kind of closed-minded or, 
you don't want to hear about other theories. That's kind of where you cross the line between being objective and being just, quote, a true believer. Yeah. And yes, of course, we need to have an open mind, but we don't need to have a closed mind to where we block off the things we don't want to hear. Now, as I said, I think that that certainly doesn't apply to people like Stan and Kevin because their conclusions, I'm, you know, I'm sure are sincerely based upon the fact that they come to these conclusions based on their study and interviewing the witnesses, etc., and the nature of what the people said they saw. That that's all fine. You know, that's like a taking a scientific look at something, analysing it, and coming to a conclusion. That's fine. Um, but I think there is this tendency, you know, to hear a great story and want it to be true and you know, don't tell me anything that's going to contradict, you know, the, the good story, so to speak. Yeah. To jump off of something you said about how Roswell sort of become the holy grail of ufology, yeah. why do you think that is that Roswell has become the uh, the linchpin, if you will, of, yeah. of the UFO scene? Well, I think one of the reasons, and it's one that I actually understand, is that, you know, the, the one thing that would prove to you, me, to the press, to everybody that UFOs and aliens exist would be the hard evidence in the ter in in the form of like a, a crashed UFO, a recovered exhibit, or um, an alien body, something like that. Um, you know, if that was presented to us and the scientific community, um, that would be the undeniable evidence. And I think out of all the crashed UFO stories and reports on record, Roswell is the one. Perhaps I mean, even I admit this that the one more than any other that that could fall into that category and where there's a huge amount of witnesses quite clearly talking about a major cover-up and people talking about bodies being found in the desert. So Roswell could be that make-or-break case. And I think that's why it's been elevated to such a status, the sense that a lot of credible military people have spoken about it. There's a wide range of varying witnesses, police people, ranchers, the public, uh, military personnel, you know, now in old age, willing to come forward. We've got a lot of material, and the government changing its story four or five times, you know, the mm -hmm. same way everybody else changes their socks. <laughs> and, um, um, so in that respect, that's why I think Roswell is so intriguing and, and potentially does offer us the opportunity of solving everything overnight if we got to the bottom of the mystery. However, in saying that, I think there is this danger in consciously or not, as I said, putting all your eggs in one basket and saying, yes, Roswell's the one, that's the one we need to solve, and okay, all the other cases are interesting, but this is the one that's going to prove it. Mm -hmm. um, now, if the case did fall down, I know that a lot of people in the subject would say, oh my God, there was no Roswell crash, so there are no alien bodies, so there's no Hangar 18, and there's nothing being back-engineered at Area 51. And it's like a stack of cards, yeah. you know, one takes the next one down and the next one. But if people took the approach that, yes, Roswell's a very, very interesting case, but Socorro's an interesting case, Rendlesham's an interesting one, abductions are fascinating, crop circles are interesting, what about this radar visual case from 56, etc., etc.? then I think not to take away the significant potential of what Roswell could be, but to re-emphasize the other cases um, you know, and not forget the fact that just because one case collapses, ufology doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean ufology is going to collapse. And I mean, the, the analogy I use is like this. If I were to ask people, you know, if Roswell collapsed tomorrow, a lot of people would think the UFO subject had collapsed. If, say, Socorro crashed tomorrow, 
they wouldn't think the UFO subject had crashed because Socorro doesn't have that hugely elevated status that Roswell does. You know, it's not because, like the linchpin of the subject. So I think we need to do away with having linchpins and just look at the broader, larger, combined body of material. Yeah, and and um, and not just from within ufology, but if the Roswell case were to collapse, I think that would be devastating to the UFO field from the outside. You know what I mean? The press and everything else yeah. and the public perception of what ufology, it would be a PR disaster. I have to say this, that unfortunately, I think as a community you know, we've been responsible for putting it at the forefront. Mm-hmm. And granted, part of the reason is because it is such an intriguing case with so many people. And I don't think it's actually been done consciously or deliberately. It is just because it's so fascinating and there are so many people who've come forward. But, you know, when, as I said, when you gamble on, you know, like the million dollars on, you know, some TV show or whatever, and you end up with five dollars, <laughs> that's that's the place we could be in in ufology. Yeah. You know, right now Roswell is the the million dollar card or whatever. You know, <laughs> that, that we lose that and then we just go crashing down to a dollar or whatever. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That would be. And like... we need to be like find a medium somewhere. In exactly. Between the two. Yeah. Definitely. I'm all in favor of sort of moving on from Roswell at this point. And one quick thing as well on Roswell, I think one of the big problems with Roswell that, you know, so many people want to solve it. I'd like to solve it. I think everybody would like to solve it. I think the big problem is and the big worry is that the longer it goes on and on, you know, it's like the less chance you have of solving it. And the analogy I use, it's kind of like a an American Jack the Ripper, you know, in the sense that, there was this unsolved murder in Britain hundred and something years ago and lots of stories about government cover-ups and who was he really. And I think Roswell's now in the danger zone of falling into that category of becoming not a myth in the sense that nothing happened, but becoming like a part of mythology, yeah, cultural mythology in the sense that it's this fascinating mystery um, that never really gets resolved. And I think, unfortunately, you know, Roswell is fast become falling into that particular category. You know, you, I mean, it's like you look at some of the guys who worked there at the time. They were 30. They're going to be like 91 now. Mm-hmm. That's how long ago it is. Yeah. And when you fall, when you get to that realization, you begin to realize, well, if the government's not going to tell us, 10 years from now, no one's going to be left at all. They're all going to be gone. And, you know, does that mean in 100 years from now, people are going to be writing you know, the the 200th anniversary edition of the Roswell incident or something like that. <laughs> I mean, that that could be the worst case scenario that mm-hmm. we just don't know because so much time has gone by. Yeah, it'll enter like the Jesse James type of thing where you yeah, know, exactly. people aren't sure yeah. What, yeah. what happened with that. And then uh, I want to touch on your, your two different trips to Puerto Rico. You don't have to talk about the whole things, but because uh, there's, a, there's a sort of a theme to the question here. And that is uh, the book really sort of crystallizes what it's like to be an esoteric researcher in a sense because you know the first time you go down there with john downs mm-hmm. and you're taping a show for sci-fi and then the second time you go down with this character named paul kimball mm-hmm. now i'm just teasing paul uh, yeah. <laughs> sinister character very sinister oh yeah terrified of the bats i heard <laughs> uh, <laughs> and yeah so the second time you go down with kimball both trips were to investigate the Chupacabra hmm. mystery. And and sort of what I'm getting to in the question is, on the way back from the second trip, you were like, you know, after the first one, I was kind of under the impression that the Chupacabra was just one thing, you know, it was just a yeah. uh, one sort of like isolated situation. But then after going down there for the second investigation, you changed your opinion on what it was all about, and there's probably hmm. more going on than you thought originally. And I, I thought that really was like, 
gave a great example of what you do as a researcher. You know, you're making a couple trips down there, and, and your your investigations evolving over time mm. over these over these two different investigations. I guess just talk about sort of how your opinion changed okay. um, over the course of those two trips and and that sort of thing. Okay. Well, I'd say first, you know, one of the whether people agree, you know, with my conclusions on the different things I write about or not. What I always try to do is present all the evidence, you know, and if my views change over time, I explain why they change. I think, you know, that that's the honest thing to do. We're all human, and we all, you know, as I said when I started off in the subjects, I thought it was quite, you know, it was A, B, C. Now, you know, I think it's one, two, three, or whatever. Mm -hmm. So. You know, I think it's important if your views change or you have to modify things and you have a good reason why that's the case, then tell people and they understand and, you know, we're all human. Um, but the, the Chupacabras, I'm sure everybody listening to the show, is this sort of weird creature that sort of haunts the lowlands and the um, rainforest, the El Yonke rainforest of Puerto Rico. And it's kind of like uh, being described as, I guess, like a kind of like a, a classic grey alien in some respects in sort of body shape with large eyes, sometimes glowing red eyes, uh, vicious-looking claws and talons and spikes down its back and almost like a punk rock mohawk, some people have said, on its head. Um, so, you know, it's not sort of the thing that you want to cross paths with on a <laughs> late at night, shall we say. Mm -hmm. um, and, of course, you know, it lives on blood as well, which is uh, another thing to look out for, supposedly, at least, anyway. And you mentioned John Downs. John's probably my closest friend in the 14 world, and we uh, used to do a lot of research and investigations in England. We used to hang out from about 96 right through to 2001 when um, I came over here. And we get together now sort of a couple of times a year to do investigations and conferences and things. And John first went to Puerto Rico in 1998. And then I went with John in 2004 and then um, in 2005 uh, with Special Agent Kimball. And, um, <laughs> which is his new title. And um, the, I guess so between the, the two of us, we'd had sort of collectively uh, three combined trips, shall we say, all together in terms of, you know, pooling information. And one of the things that, you know, I found that I didn't necessarily appreciate uh, just from reading books or magazine articles or watching TV shows was how sort of deeply ingrained in the culture the issue of the, the Chupacabras was and still is. And by that I mean that you know, Puerto Rico is like a relatively small island, a lot of isolated little villages and towns, and the, the Chupacabras has become literally you know, part of their, their entire culture. And there are a lot of people I spoke with, particularly on the first trip, um, eyewitnesses either to the creature itself or farmers whose animals had been attacked and drained of blood with quite literally, a, you know, two puncture marks on the neck. They were very, very superstitious and concerned as to what this thing was, where it was from, you know, was it going to come back? Um, and John, for example, even interviewed a couple of people on his first expedition where when he went in the one little village, they actually got crosses painted on the front doors, you know, something oh, wow. like straight out of like an old horror film or whatever. You know, the sun sets and they paint crosses on because the vampires are going to come down from the mountains or whatever. It was, it was that was exactly how it was. Um, so actually to get out there and, you know, meet some of these people and gain their confidence to where they're willing to talk to you was an eye-opening experience. And, you know, the, the, from a cultural perspective as well as... Of, 
uh, you know, driving around the island and checking out some of these little towns and villages and going high up into the mountains and, for example, speaking to a, an elderly lady who told us how she'd seen one of these creatures in back in 75, which she described as having like a monkey-type body with large, leathery, almost like pterodactyl-style wings, um, which sort of glared at her in the middle of the road. She literally had to stop the car. Um, you know, a woman who had no axe to grind, no reason whatsoever to, you know, invent tales like this, just had a fascinating story and wanted to know what was going on. So that was the, that was really the situation with the uh, expedition that I went on in 2004 with John. Mm-hmm. Now, in 2005, Paul was making this um, documentary called Fields of Fear for his company, Red Star Films, which was essentially like a, an overall study of animal mutilations with obviously the emphasis on cattle mutilations and one of the things that Paul wanted to cover was the chupacabras because although you know it, it wasn't kind of classed exactly the same as the cattle mutes where people talk about surgical precision and you know laser-like incisions and organs being excised with what appear to be high heat or instruments, etc. That That's not how the Chupacabras reports were, but they were, by definition, animal mutilations and animal killings. So we went out there, I think, I think it was for about a week or so now, um, and again, Paul had got a, a researcher on the island that uh, we worked with who got a huge range of knowledge on the subject and also was able to put us in touch with various people, people from the civil defense um, units, um, you know, pretty much anybody and everybody who could give different perspectives on what this creature could be. And one of the things that he, the, the researcher, by the way, his name was Orlando Pla, and Orlando told us various accounts that he'd come across um, some people talking about, yes, this was like a very weird-looking creature with bat-like wings that, you know, some people suggest it was connected with aliens. Some people thought it was like a supernatural entity. Others even suggested, which I don't buy this theory, but it was one that circulated quite widely amongst the, you know, some of the more superstitious people was the fact or the idea that, you know, it was some sort of weird genetic experiment created in a laboratory that got wildly out of control. And, you know, I pointed out in the book that I know governments are up to some weird stuff, but I don't even think that the best scientists of the U.S. government can kind of mutate a little rhesus monkey into like a razor-clawed killing machine, if you like, that's, you know, with back-like wings. That's just not plausible, I don't think. Um, So that theory is in circulation. One of the ones I actually found most interesting of all was one that Orlando told us was how... Um, drug smugglers on the island were actually exploiting the mystery for themselves and spreading chupacabras tales in areas where they were doing their drug drops to keep people out of the area. And, you know, this is kind of like a, almost like a psychological warfare angle of creating mysteries or exploiting mysteries to cover up something else. Mm-hmm. And I think that applies with the UFO subject. I think the military uses the UFO subject sometimes as a cover for testing of you know, next-generation stealth-type aircraft. They're quite happy for people to think they've seen little green men because it keeps the real story hidden. Yeah. And so, you know, we had all these different stories when I went with Paul. And we also uncovered a number of stories where Orlando had told us that the people had actually reported seeing other creatures on the island uh, one very similar to the sort of famous Velociraptor off Jurassic Park, and even big cats and 
one of the things that might surprise a lot of people is there actually aren't any big indigenous animals on Puerto Rico at all. It's actually, although it's got a lush and green rainforest, in terms of the um, indigenous animals, you are pretty much limited to things like um, sheep, um, goats, pigs, chickens, that sort of thing. There's nothing like, um, you know, monkeys, lions, tigers, yeah. giant snakes, nothing, yeah. even though, it, as I said, it has this huge rainforest. So to to get these different reports of these various animals kind of opened my eyes to the fact that what began as an investigation of what I initially perceived to just be a weird animal then became something where you had all these crossover type stories and different theories and people spreading these stories to cover something else up. And one of the other angles was the fact that Orlando had learned that there was a lot of voodoo and black magic going on on the island, which involved uh, sort of ritualistic killing of animals, which again, that could be acting as a cover, or the Chupacabras, I should say, could be acting as a cover for some of these, you know, um, ancient rites and rituals, etc., mm-hmm. involving uh, slaughtering animals and collecting the blood, etc., in, in classic bloodletting type rituals. Um, so, you know, I think if people ask me what the Chupacabras is, I think it's probably a combination of various things. I, I'm, I'm convinced there is some something weird out there doing these killings. Now, one of the theories that's being put forward, which I think is an interesting one, is that you know, many, many years ago in the fossil record, there were very, very big, and I do mean huge, bats, you know, very, very large wingspans. Now, if you look at bat, it's a bat, and you know, if you remove the wings, it almost does have like this monkey-type ex- um, expression and features. Now, if it's possible that, as some people believe, certain creatures in the fossil record have survived extinction, is it possible that some of these reports could be due to the activities of some sort of giant bat or bat-like creature? I wouldn't rule that out. Uh, but again, the, the problem with that theory is that a lot of the Chupacabras reports have occurred in the same vicinity as, again, UFO reports, particularly also black flying triangle reports. Um, weird lights in the sky, animal mutilation. So in that respect, I think, you know, we don't have the answer, but one of the things I tried to get across in the book with these expeditions was to point out to people that with cases and events like this, really the only way to do it is to keep getting out there and and trying to find more and more people to interview and actually getting into the thick of things. You know, the internet and books are great, but there's really no alternative for sort of getting your hands dirty and, you know, clambering through the woods to find some old guy who said he saw, you know, ABC or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, that, that's that's sort of the background to it. Um, in terms of some of the stories, I mean, the first time I went with John, um, one of the most fascinating ones, fascinating stories came from a guy named Noel, who, he was a chicken breeder, and he woke up one morning to find all his chickens dead, actually dead in the cages. And what was interesting was that each of the cages had kind of a complex lock on the door. Whatever had killed them had opened the lock. It hadn't tore the cages apart. And each of the chickens had got the two puncture marks on the neck, blood removed from the body uh, or bodies. And the interesting thing was that his property was a very small one and the chicken uh, cages backed right onto his house and he hadn't heard a single thing in the middle of the night. And this is one of the things that is a characteristic that's common in the cattle mutilations and it seems to be that whatever's doing these attacks comes in and 
However it does it, I don't know, but it seems to have the ability to kill these creatures without causing any commotion or fuss. The animals don't seem to scream or make a noise. It's like it's over before it began. Now, again, how we explain that, I don't know, but you know, that, that's one of the sort of more bizarre and unsettling things is that there seems to be some sort of force out there that can you know, enter our world or you know, yeah. use us or manipulate us, and, and it does it without really... Anybody even noticing, shall we say? Yeah. Now, how terrified of the bass was Kimball? Because when I saw him, in, I met him in Canada this summer, and uh, the book had just come out, and he was like, Nick Redfern said I was terrified of the bass, but I was only joking, and he tried to <laughs> try to kind of blow it off, and I thought he was maybe puffing up his chest to make up for it. So, uh, how terrified was he really? <laughs> well, you know, I won't say Paul wasn't terrified. No, I'm just, I'm just I mean, pulling him. <laughs> but seriously, you have to be careful. I mean, the first time when I went to Puerto Rico. Um, we did an investigation in a large cave system, and one of the things that the guides told us was that when you go in there, you will see a lot of bats on the ceiling, which we certainly did. Um, one of the theories that was put forward is that the Chupacabras inhabits some of these extensive cave systems that, that certainly do exist on the island. And, you know, it acts as good cover, I suppose, during the daytime, and then it comes out at night to feed. Um, so we did some sort of, like, representation filming in the caves to sort of show you know the viewers what it was like in there and the guide said to us you'll see uh, bats up on the ceiling but don't stand underneath them um and just keep staring at them we said well why not and they said well a lot of them have, have rabies and if they oh, drip geez. saliva down and you you know you're stood there with your mouth wide open looking at these big bats so you're liable to get a mouthful of rabid saliva oh my god and then it's like a trip to the hospital for needles in your stomach and all sorts oh, of things god. That, you know, kind of like Ozzy Osbourne biting the head off yeah. of that sort of, you know, you get whipped off to hospital to, uh, in case you start turning into something like a demented person out of 28 days later or something like that. So, oh, man. And, um, that would terrify so, me. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, <laughs> but see, I mean, you have to be careful about things like that. Um, there was another story we found about, which actually I heard, I heard it when I was there with Paul, and I heard it when I was there with John as well, and I think there could be something to it. Granted, it was kind of like um, like a folkloric tale almost, but everybody seemed to know about it. It was the idea that at some point there'd been a U.S. government-sponsored primate research lab on the island that was doing research into the AIDS virus and that they were using monkeys in experiments, and supposedly some of these escaped and were never caught. And the story put to us was that in certain parts of the the forest, there are actually like whole colonies of AIDS-infected monkeys. And we were told, you know, if you see a little friendly monkey, go and go up to him and pat him on the head. You know, you might end up HIV positive or whatever. Oh, man. You know, or whatever. So, you know, the, the, those are the hazards that you find in some of these places. You know, you not only are battling rabid bats, um, HIV positive monkeys when you're trying to find vampires, but, you know, you're, you're faced with crippling 120-degree heat occasionally. You know, humidity, not much water when you're out in the in the jungles, etc. And it's you know it can be kind of tough. So you have to sort of go well equipped and try and keep fit if you can, and uh, you know just battle on. So. <laughs> definitely, definitely. The next thing I want to ask you about is you talk about the filming of an episode of uh, Penn and Teller's bullshit, mm. and uh, but you didn't talk about really um, how the episode came out. And I want to ask you how that did come out because I know a lot of people in the esoteric world have been on the show. And, you know, they kind of got the short shift, if you will, from, from Penn and Teller when they presented the case. I was just wondering how you fared after uh, after they put you through the grinder. 
Well, I won't so much put through the grinder. I think, you know, it's like um, like a lot of shows, um, you know, in terms of their approach, it's more of a skeptical approach. Um, and I think they basically just came to the conclusion, you know, the things we were looking for weren't really, you know, that we didn't find evidence for them. Um, it literally wasn't any more or any less than that, really. You know, I'm not really sure how other people have come up because I actually don't have the channel on our TV that's, that it's broadcast on. I think it's showtime, so I only got the video of, of our one episode. Um, so, you know, I'm a little unsure as to what went on on the other one. But, it was, you know, I think, you know, the nature of the show is that um, it's it's like a, a look at unsolved mysteries, but, you know, if the evidence isn't there, they they conclude, you know, that you didn't find the evidence. So yeah. that was that was basically it with that one. Yeah, it's mostly just, uh, well, I've seen, if, I saw, like, the first couple seasons. I'll mm. look and see which one. You're on the ghosts one? Yeah, that's right. This was actually nothing to do with cryptozoology. Yeah. It was sort of like a ghost hunting one in a in a haunted hotel in Texas. Um, but again, as I said, you know, I don't have, I don't know Showtime on our TV, so I've never actually seen the show. <laughs> it's pretty good. If, uh, it's kind of neat to see some of the people like Jim Mars, and um, mm. I'm trying to think of some of the other people that I've seen on there. But, mm-hmm. but it's always like they, you know, we never win on that show, on that show. You already know that going in, like when you go to watch it. Kind of like you said, you know, you know from yeah. the, from the show. But sometimes the things they say are like so biting that you're like, all right, mm-hmm. you know, you don't, you know, <laughs> like I know Jim Mars. I don't think he's like a crazy asshole or whatever. You know, something crazy they would yeah. say. You know, yeah. they really sort of like take uh, paw shots. So I just hope uh, that didn't happen to you. Well, from the bits that I saw, it didn't. Um, as I said, you know, I, I don't actually have Showtime, um, so I've never seen the show other than extracts from. Um, the ones, the one that I was on, um, but you know, as I said, it's one of these things where you know you, you get shows that that take a critical approach if the evidence isn't there, and you go in if you want to do the show. That's why it's not like anybody's bending your arm to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, you go into some of these programs knowing that if you're up against skeptics, you know um, what the outcome is going to be. So. Have you ever done like a TV show and then been disappointed after the fact that it turned out, you know, that they went after you or they. You know what I mean? Like, uh, that yeah. they were skeptical and maybe, cause like, when I talked to Jim about this, mm. he said, you know, the crew and everything that came down to film him were like the coolest guys and they were totally mm. down with what he was talking about. I think it was JFK assassination and, you know, they, they totally understood. They were probably freelance dudes from around Texas. Yeah. But then when it got out to LA or whatever, yeah. then the whole thing took on a different, like, flavor. Have you ever had something like that happen? Yeah, I think, I mean, everybody, I mean, you know, just talking about shows in general, I think the the hazard with TV, and I, I'm, I'm just, I'm not even any specific shows, just mm-hmm. generally here. I think one of the hazards of doing TV work when the show isn't live is the fact that, you know, they may film you for five or six hours, and then they have to condense, you know, the interviewees down to an hour-long program, which has three 15-minute commercial breaks, or five-minute commercial breaks, I mean. Um and maybe they've interviewed another six or seven people for the show. So your part is cut down from six hours of filming to sort of maybe seven minutes. And one of the hazards is that, you know, your words can either be taken out of context sometimes or not usually so much taken out of context, but you just edit it down so much that you're not able to get the important critical points across. And maybe, you know, they just focus on generalities. That's that's one of the problems, and of course, you know, you don't have any say what ends up on the cutting room floor and what ends up on the show. Yeah. You know, that's that's just down to the editors. Um, you know, I found that several times myself, where 
you know, I've done a TV show, I've presented, for example, government documents confirming, you know, where a pilot, for example, seen a UFO. And then we find that at a nearby base 10 miles away, the radar operator was tracking the UFO at the same time. And I presented the documents with the top secret stamp on or the secret stamp or whatever. And then when the show is broadcast, you sit down and watch it and none of that appears. And it's Nick Redfern believes UFOs exist because, you know, his dad saw one when he was in the RAF or whatever. Well, you know, why mention that? Why not just show previously classified documents that confirm these events? Yeah. You know, that that's the thing. It's it's often that the good stuff gets left behind. Um you know, and unfortunately that's that's just partly sometimes due to the nature and the bias of the program and other times it's just due to the fact that they've got a small show with loads of people to interview and what turned what was originally a huge in depth interview ends up as just soundbite quotes yeah. here and there. Yeah. And, you know, that that's but I don't think that's necessarily just relative to ufology or even the paranormal. I think, you know, that's if there's some, you know, T V documentary on the history of the Second World War or whatever, you have the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't matter what it is really, it's that that's just T V, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, that seems to be the case. One of the big themes in the book is uh, this synchronicity that seems to follow you um, when it comes to the esoteric and strange sort of things sort of happen. Um, I could, I, I'm sure you can tell them anyway yourself, but like the MJ-12 and the plane that says JM-12 or JM-21 or something like that. And, um, you know, you're going, you're going to a conference and it turns out it's going to be at uh, like your sister-in-law's place or something along yeah. those lines. And it seems to keep coming up over and over and over again in the mm. book. Uh, I guess just talk a little bit about that synchronicity and what do you think that's all about? Well, I think one of the things I've found, and this is one of the reasons why I think what appears to be black and white issues relative to different aspects of the paranormal, whether it's cryptozoology or ufology, one of the reasons I think they're not black and white is this issue of repeated synchronicities that a lot of people in the subject have. You know, and it's not something special to me, nothing, you know, I'm not, anything special at all. It, it just literally is the case that more, the more and more that people delve into these puzzles, it's almost like there's some hidden hand guiding them in different directions and, as I said, weird coincidences and bizarre synchronicities begin to happen to where you almost actually kind of question reality, you know, or are we living in some sort of weird matrix-type world yeah. or whatever. And, you know, I point this out in the book that... Um, on repeated occasions, I've had weird experiences where you begin to think, well, you know, there's no way this meeting or this thing could have happened by chance. You know, and when it keeps happening, you think, well, what's the point of it? Who's doing it and why is it happening? But, yeah. I mean, a few classic examples. Um, you mentioned um, about conferences. Um, the, the Texas Bigfoot Conference in 2004, which I was booked to speak at, so I got a call from the organizer said, would you like to come and speak? Um, yep, yeah, that's fine, no problem at all. Uh, we booked her into this um, particular bed and breakfast, and they're like, oh, yeah, I know where that is. And I said, oh, how do you know that is where that is? I said, because it's my wife's aunt who runs the place. You know, that, that's just like a down-to-earth thing that could happen to anybody. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there have been some stranger ones. You mentioned the, the MJ-12 story. This was a really weird one. This was when I was traveling to Puerto Rico um, with Paul, uh, Paul Kimball, in 2005. And 
obviously with Paul being in Canada, he'd flown down from Canada to Puerto Rico and I'd flown across from Texas to, to Puerto Rico. Paul had me going on a completely weird journey. That's a, <laughs> yeah. that's a different story. But anyway, <laughs> I was sat on the um, tarmac at, um, I, it was, I forget where it was anyway now. It was, it was some particular airport that Paul had me at. And um, talking actually with a guy sat next to him, he was a military guy of all things, about Roswell because he asked, we got, just got chatting and I said, you know, I wrote books about UFOs and mysteries and we got talking about Roswell. And lo and behold, as we got talking about Roswell, this plane sort of just taxied past the window at the back where I could see it. And the, the tail letters on the aircraft were 12 MJ, which, you know, is like MJ-12. Yeah. And so I quickly snapped a photograph off. And it's actually on my UFO Mystic blog. Uh, you can see the photograph there. Um, that was a little weird, you know, the fact that you'd be talking about Roswell and these secret groups and then... This aircraft trundles by with 12 MJ, MJ-12 on the, on the tail letters. Um, but again, you know, these are just a couple of cases of, of countless numbers of reports that not just me, but many people in these types of subjects have had, where sometimes it's like almost if something's guiding you to meet certain people or be in certain places at the right time. Others, it's almost as if it's opening your eyes and kind of trying to give you a clue to something. And I don't pretend to even have an answer as to why it's happening or who's doing it or for what purpose. I just know that the more you dig into these things, the more these strange coincidences, coincidences and synchronicities seem to happen. Yeah. And here's a little uh, compare and contrast type of question for you that uh, you're probably one of the few people that could answer it. UK field research versus US field research. Mm. Are there any big similarities or differences between the, the two countries and when you're doing field research? You know, maybe the witnesses are hesitant to talk in one country or yeah. less hesitant. You know what I mean? Well, I think one of the biggest differences is is based upon the fact of the different sizes of the countries. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, Britain itself, England, Scotland and Wales, the square mileage is actually smaller than the of the three countries combined, England, Scotland, Wales, the square mileage is smaller than the square mileage of the state of Texas. Oh, wow. It's, yeah, it's literally like about 50 miles smaller, I think, something like that. And so, you know, you bear in mind the sheer scale of the size of America compared to Britain. One of the things I think, one of the big differences is that because, you know, all of us in paranormal studies are usually, <laughs> unless we're really lucky, you know, we're always sort of strapped for cash and to do <laughs> investigations. Yeah. And so, you know, there's no way that I can sort of live in Dallas here and jet off to California tomorrow and then jet off to Nebraska on Tuesday and then New York on Wednesday to do investigation. You know, I'll be bankrupt inside a week. Um, you know, it's just not feasible because the country's so big. So one of the big differences, I think, is that in America, a lot of the investigations are always undertaken by groups local to that area. Whereas in Britain, you know, when I used to live over there, somebody might phone me up and say, hey, you know, I've got a story of a crashed UFO in Scotland. It's like, well, you know, I'll get in the car, I'll be there in five hours yeah. or six hours or whatever. Uh, or avoid the cops, four hours. And, <laughs> <laughs> and um, you know, or somebody said that a crop circles appeared down in Wiltshire, which is like a three-hour drive from where I used to live. The, the advantage there is that everybody in the subject in England whether it's crop circles, ufology, cryptozoology, everybody pretty much knows everybody else. Yeah. Not just by reputation, but by face. You know, and everybody hangs out with each other at the same conferences because, you know, there's nowhere really that's going to take you 
more than a day at most, well, sort of half a day to drive to, unless you're at the bottom of the country driving to the very top, and then it's no more than a day. So, you know, I think that's the big difference, was that in Britain there's more of like a united countrywide scene where everybody's getting involved and everybody's friends and knows each other. Whereas over here, I think it's more, you know, there's a lot of people who I've corresponded with on things like UFO updates, but I wouldn't have a clue what they look like. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because you you just never see these people. Mm-hmm. And that, that's not a criticism. It's just the fact that, you know, the countries are so different in size that you just don't get to meet up with certain people and a lot of reports get localized. And I think sometimes, unfortunately, when there's a lot of local investigations going on, people perhaps on the other side of the country don't necessarily always get to hear about them. Yeah, That can be a problem in terms of sharing information. Less so now the Internet's, you know, up and running, obviously. But, you know, in years past, I think a lot of stuff might have got bypassed, people just not knowing about it. But I think for the most part, um, it kind of parallels quite closely. I don't think there's that many differences. Um, You know, you have people in both countries going to archives looking for government files or... Mm -hmm you know, going out into crop circles and trying to do scientific tests on them or investigating abductions, hypnosis, that sort of thing. I don't I don't think there's that many differences. I think I think in Britain there's more I won't say more of a skeptical approach to the UFO subject. I would say that perhaps the the alien angle is less dominated in Britain than it is over here. And, you know, people are perhaps more inclined to look at some of these weirder, more esoteric ideas of excuse me, interdimensional things or, you know, paranormal aspects to yeah. these phenomena rather than just, you know, nuts and bolts, spaceships, etc. Mm-hmm. And I think with cryptozoology as well, I think, again, because Britain is a small country and it's easy to travel around and there aren't a lot of really massive forests. Yes, there's a lot of, you know, big forests, but not anything like the Pacific Northwest it becomes easier to get into some of these locations where these creatures have been seen. But then you find, you know, as I said, these a lot of these reports have been made near old stone circles and burial mounds, and which, again, are quite accessible. So I think in that respect, there's this tendency or approach that people realize that, you know, it's not just the case of some large lumbering ape running around the woods, that that's not feasible in Britain to do that. Yeah. There's no way a colony of 50 Bigfoot could hide out. There's no way they, way they could live. Mm-hmm. But the reports are no less credible than they are over here. But I think because of the nature of the country, people realize that, hang on, there's got to be more or something stranger to it. So those are sort of the, those are the main differences, I think. Is there anything in the esoteric world that you haven't researched that you'd like to, you know, when things settle down a little bit? I know you don't, you know, you're a writer, you don't want things to settle down, but is there anything, is there anything you know, you'd like, you'd like to look into someday that, that you haven't had a chance to dive into yet? Um, that's a good question. I mean, you know, for, for someone who's sort of involved in the paranormal, I, you know, I'm interested in ghostly type things, but I'm not massively interested in, in all that, you know, psychic phenomena and ghosts and poltergeists. I think it's interesting to read, but I'm not sort of passionate about it to where, you know, I get involved. But one of the things that particularly interests me um, and that I've written about sort of, sort of chapters here and there, but I'd like to get more involved in is the whole issue of werewolf stories. And again, you know, I, for people before they, you know, the jaws drop to the floor, I don't <laughs> think, um, you know, people at the size of the full moon are sprouting 
fur and fangs and, you know, running around and howling at the moon. I don't, I don't think that's happening in like a classic Hollywood style. But again, we get a lot of reports in England of what look like sort of classic Hollywood American werewolf in London type um, werewolves. Um, and again, a lot of them have been reported in the vicinity of ancient prehistoric areas of significance. Um, one of the theories, and I think this is kind of an interesting one that's been put forward, is that perhaps ancient man had mental abilities that you know we've lost. And one of the theories that's been put forward is that they were able to kind of create imagery, almost like a psychic alarm clock or guard dog. You know, some local tribe would infringe on their territory and then suddenly this weird creature would appear, but it would be an apparition, a creation of the mind. Yeah. And that one of the theories is that perhaps some of these creations, you know, in some sort of semi-limbo existence actually are still around and could be seen from time to time. And that perhaps that's what some of these things are. You know, people deliberately created these monstrous images years ago and the, there's like a residual energy left. Uh, Getting to controversial theory, but that's what I think some of these werewolf type things could be. Yeah. Uh, but that's that's one of my other interests is, uh, you know, sort of allegedly real-life uh, werewolf encounters. So I'd like to do something um, along those lines and, um, you know, just keep doing the crypto stuff and, you know, more investigations, on-the-road type investigations. I think that's really the, the – particularly with cryptozoology but also with ufology, you know, actually getting out there is one of the key ways we're going to get the answers if we have a chance of finding them. Definitely, definitely. And one of the things that's really kind of fascinated me uh, in the last, like, four months or so, and something that I'll be looking into, sort of, I'll be trying to find the answer to, the, to my own question here that's coming up, but uh, and I, they're what I like to call the lost mysteries of esoterica. I'm talking about stuff like Bermuda Triangle, mm. spontaneous human combustion, um, even Amelia Earhart, and I have a feeling someday Roswell will join this group. And uh, I, I kind of feel like the Loch Ness Monster is on its way to, to this realm of the lost mm. mysteries of esoterica. Uh, why do you think these stories, which were pretty wildly popular, like in the 70s and 80s at least, because I remember seeing those Time Life book commercials, mm. and, you know, uh, definitely Bermuda Triangle was one of the big guns of esoterica, and now it's like you barely ever hear about it anymore. Um, yeah. Why do you think these things seem to fall off the radar of the paranormal? Well, I think I think a part of it, Tim, at least, is that you know public interest and researcher interest changes. I mean, it's like you know if you focus on the UFO subject, um, you go if you look if you go back and read a lot of the books from the 50s, you know it was all the government's either hiding all this nuts and bolts UFO technology, kind of like a Donald Kehoe type scenario with cover-ups, etc., or you had the George Adamski. George Van Tassel type stuff of um, you know, contactees and people being whisked around Jupiter by the Space Commander with ridiculously stupid names or whatever, yeah. you know, and um, almost like Pamela Anderson type space babes and things like that, which would uh, that's you know that that for me that's the sort of thing that should come back. But, yeah. <laughs> but, but um, no, I think what it part of, part of it at least I think is that for whatever reason there's good evidence with ufology that the phenomenon itself is changing and manipulating or manipulating us. You know, as I said earlier, it began with things like the mystery airships and the Foo Fighters, the ghost rockets, flying saucers, flying triangles, mm -hmm. long-haired aliens, greys, things like this. You know, go back 40 years, a lot of reports of soil samples being taken by aliens or 
vehicle interference cases, people's cars stopping in the middle of the road. Things like that now, we rarely get reports like that anymore. Um, and I think because the phenomenon changes, sometimes the interest changes to differing degrees. Um, it's like crop circles in England. Crop circles in the late 80s, from about 89 to 91, I mean, it was major news. You know, people at the BBC would cover it on the nighttime news in the summer when all these formations were at the height. And that's pretty much died off now, aside from the fact that, you know, you'll get a couple of days in the summer where the mainstream newspapers will report the crop circles are back, you know, and then yeah. it's gone till next year. And I think, on the one hand, people kind of get used to these things. I think the other issue is that when the mysteries aren't solved, sometimes, and this replies to the research community as well, not just the media and the general public, people walk away from them because they get frustrated at the fact that this mystery that they've been looking into for so long remains unresolved and they never did get to the bottom of it. And so, you know, they leave it alone, nobody else takes up the challenge, and and it vanishes. Um, and I think it's the same, you know, you look back 100 years, uh, in the Victorian times, for example, one of their big things was seances. You know, that was a huge thing in England back then. Mm -hmm. You know, rapping on tables, that sort of thing. Um, and again, you don't see that at a great level now. You know, that's kind of been replaced by, I guess, the equivalent of things like ghost hunters and, and those type of things. Yeah. So... The, no, again, it's not so much the phenomenon has changed, but I think approaches have changed. Um, there's you know, d differing opinions on different, on different parts of different people as to what might be going on. There's people who've walked away from the subjects because they haven't solved it. No one else has come to take the mantle after they've gone. And, you know, so they do go into limbo. It's like one of the ones I always found fascinating was the Philadelphia experiment. You know, yep, I don't know yep, what happened there, yeah. but certainly, you know, when Bill Moore's and Charles Berlitz's book of the same name came out, that was big news. And then it got, you know, um, picked up again a few years afterwards, a few years after that, and that seems to have gone quiet. And I think, again, it's purely and simply because that there aren't many people who necessarily replace the original people. Um, so I think, this, you know, I agree with you. There's a lot of great mysteries out there that, unfortunately, you know, with the human attention span, we forget they are out there. Yeah. And people, you think, well, you know, why why didn't somebody go back and investigate this? It's a great story. So. Yeah, yeah, it's weird. It's a, it's a strange sort of uh, turn of events. All right, now we'll segue into these questions that, uh, that I got from the two writers we have at the website and also okay. one of our big-time listeners, my boy Richard in Wales. Okay. He's uh he sent in a couple questions. He's he's sort of like my UK correspondent. He has two questions and and uh, I have a follow up to the first one. So we'll just start with uh he want to know about the alien big cat sightings in Wales. He he sent me a specific story where his sister mm. had seen a big cat. So it's uh, obviously something that's resonated with him. Mm. And he yeah. just wants to know a little bit about the big cat sightings in uh, Wales and the rest of Great Britain. Okay, well certainly in Britain. Um, Definitely since the early 1980s and right through to the present day, there's been a massive amount of reports, literally hundreds and hundreds per year now, of sightings of so-called mystery big cats. Predominantly, they're sort of like a, a, a puma-type uh, cat, if you like. Um, you would get a, even get occasional reports of where people said they've seen lions, tigers, lynxes, things like that. But for the most part, they're sort of like a black puma-type animal. And... 
you know, we do get a lot of reports from Wales, and I think one of the reasons is, it's, you know, it's, it's sort of, in many cases, like a mountainous, wild area. with lots of sheep running around, you know, on the farms, and it's an ideal place for an animal to hide out, a predatorial animal. Um, we get a lot of reports from Devon and Cornwall, which, again, are kind of, you know, windswept moorland-type locations straight out of Pound of the Baskervilles, where, again, it would be quite easy for these creatures to breed and hide. Um, central England, where I used to come from, a lot of big forests there, one called the Canic Chase, which is actually about 15 minutes from where I used to live. And they used to get a lot of reports from there. So, again, these are, you know, all good breeding locations. And, you know, I don't think anybody, even the police or the authorities, doubt that there are wild cats out there. I think where the authorities dispute things is that they don't doubt that there are wild cats. They dispute whether or not there are big cats out there. Yeah. You know, there's a, a big difference between a wild cat, a feral cat, and, you know, a quote, a big cat. Um, so, you know, I think they kind of like to or prefer to play the matter down because, you know, this image of uh, giant cats wandering around the British countryside isn't one that the authorities want to instill in the minds of the yeah. British public. I actually think that is a legitimate concern, and I think it's deliberately being played down for um, that reason, because they know the press will whip it up with stories about the beast on the loose and things like that. Yeah. Uh, but for the most part, you know, there are a couple of reports of people being attacked, but they're always kind of like a grey area. And I think these things prefer to remain out of, you know, human sight and focus on the things they know they can kill and, and eat without any problems. But, yeah, there's, there's definitely hundreds of reports per year. But equally, you know, there are, we get strange reports as well, esoteric reports. As I mentioned, big cats haven't been seen in crop circles. Big cats literally vanishing. And I, and I do mean vanishing in the blink of an eye, literally vanishing. You know, you know, you either dismiss these reports or you have to put them with all the body of evidence and try and deter <clears throat> determine what's going on, um, you know, with respect to these stories and how do we explain them. But, uh, yeah, I mean, there's no doubt, though, that people are seeing these things all across Britain every year. Yeah, yeah. His, uh, his little sighting here that he sent me was, uh, a few years ago, my younger sister and her friend, while out in the South Wales countryside, saw what they described as a very big black cat carrying a fully grown sheep in its mouth. Mm. So, I mean, that kind of, that probably sums up pretty much what the, what the big cat type, that's a big cat. Yeah. And the question I had, the follow-up question that, that sort of I had uh, to his question was, why do you think, now you've said they had these big cats, they've had big cat sightings in Puerto Rico, and I'm sure they've had them in America, um, but why do you think the big cat got so big, um, <laughs> and I, you know, <laughs> no pun intended, I guess you could say, why do you think the big cat story got so popular and big in England? Um, because mm. it's really one of the big uh, esoteric stories over there in England is the, oh, is the is. big cat thing. Mm. Um, and over here in America... You know, I don't even know if it's in the top ten of, of paranormal yeah. mysteries here. Well, I think one of the main reasons why is because, you know, Britain being a small island, they're actually, you know, as far, well, there are one or two researchers who've taken the opinion that there could be like a hidden species of big cat that's indigenous to Britain that's always lived here and has never been identified. You know, I think that's stretching it a bit, but some people do subscribe to that. But I think the reason why it's captured so much attention is because... There's nothing like that supposed to live in Britain. You know, over here, people say, oh, well, we get mountain lions, you know, we get lynxes and things like that. It's not surprising. But in Britain, there shouldn't be anything like that wandering around the countryside. You know, it's almost like the equivalent of somebody saying they saw a rhinoceros or whatever. Yeah. Um, so I think there's that angle. 
Um, I think there's also kind of like the mystique, the, the idea that in the world that we think's modern and we know everything, that there are these little mysterious little old towns and villages in England and old woods and forests that haven't changed for centuries and there are these weird creatures living in them. There's like that, you know, the angle that ev everybody, you know, as a kid, there are monsters hiding under the bed, you know, and I think that's like the adult equivalent in some respects from not in that it's in the imagination but from the perspective of how it's perceived it's oh you know there's you know life isn't just paying the mortgage and going to work there's like entertaining weird stories out there yeah. i think that you know it captures the public's imagination mm -hmm. um so i think that's one angle now i think the other reason why it's attracted so much attention is because it's undoubtedly a real valid mystery you know it's not something just conjured up out of the minds of you know, the people's imagination and the reason i say that is because back in the uh, 1976 the government passed something called the british government passed something called the dangerous wild animals act that basically meant that if you, before then you could actually keep um like an exotic big cat on your property if it was sort of well maintained but when they passed this act you had to get a license which cost huge amounts of money even back then Many people couldn't afford it, so they were faced with two possibilities. They would have to have the animal destroyed, or they would have to hand it over to the authorities or you know, give it to a zoo or whatever, and it would be stuck in like a cramped 12-foot-by-12-foot cage or whatever, yeah. uh, in a, you know, some cheap zoo. Um, a lot of people didn't want to take either alternative, so what they did, they would drive out to the woods and forests in the middle of the night, and if they got two or three of them, they'd let them all go together, so hopefully you know, they could survive together and breed. Um, a lot of people did that. 99.9% .9 of them would never admit it because of, you know, possibly being prosecuted. Yeah. Even. Um, so, in that respect, that's how we know that, you know, this mystery is a valid one. And I think, you know, it offers people the idea that, wow, this is a weird mystery, but it's one we could actually solve. And I think that's why a lot of people get involved in big cat investigations in England because it is one that offers the researcher the possibility of actually getting the evidence, you know. Mm -hmm. it, it wouldn't surprise me if one day somebody, you know, news flash on the TV or whatever, some guy driving home late at night hits something, thinks he's hit a dog, and it's, you know, like a seven-foot-long puma or whatever. I think that probably will happen one day because this isn't, for the most part at least, something intangible. There's, there's a valid reason why some of these things are out there. And yeah. Um, so that makes like the lure of the chase makes it is more plausible, shall we say? Yeah, exactly. All right, and this is Richard's second question here, and he wants to know if you know anything about the Welsh UFO triangle story. Uh, it's a sighting, and it's also, yeah. also known as the West Wales flap of 1977. Yeah, there was a lot of weird reports in Wales in 1977 of, of UFO activity, of landings, of things coming out the sea. Um, of, reportedly of like entities wandering around the Welsh countryside I've been seen in little villages and I'll be honest I don't know a great deal about it a couple of books have been written one by a guy named Peter Paget which was called the Welsh Triangle and I think the best way to describe it is kind of like a you know these classic UFO flap situations you get yeah. kind of like a Point Pleasant in the mid-60s with the Mothman and UFOs and men in black type stories and things like that it was like that a huge concentration of UFO reports, but I'll be perfectly honest, I, re I never really investigated it, and Peter Paget's book I probably read when I was like 15 or something. Like no problem. That. Hey. So.
Richard's also the guy that made me ask you about the Berwyn Mountain incident uh, when I was at the crash conference. So he's practically mm -hmm. interviewed you himself at this point. But uh, yeah, Berwyn's is a What's weird that? one as well. Yeah, Berwyn's is a weird one. Mm -hmm. Now we'll move on to the, uh, the the questions from the writers, and they only uh, okay. two of the writers sent in two questions each, and uh, that's really cool in the sense because I've had other guests on, um, you know, and I'll shoot them an email a couple of weeks before the interview, or whatever, and a lot of times, you know. They don't have a question, or they're like, you're the one that does the interviews. Don't worry. You know, I don't have any anything I could ask you to already come up with or something like that. But this time when I was like, I'm interviewing Nick Redfern on Wednesday, they were like, oh, ask him this and ask him that. Mm -hmm. so, so Regan Lee, who you may, oh, yeah. you may know, um, yeah. Regan had uh, two questions. And I guess the first one is, what do you think it is about deserts that makes for UFOs and other esoteric experiences? Mm -hmm. Well, that's a good one. She actually asked me about the other day on uh, online. Um, I think well, that's an interesting scenario. I mean, I brought this up with, or I brought it up in the past with a lot of people. You know, the idea that if you look back at, for example, the 1950s contactee cases like George Adamski and George Van Tassel, a lot of them occurred in desert locations where you know they either felt compelled to go out or they just happened to be in the right place at the right time and saw these advanced entities, which they perceived to be aliens, at this desert location. It was kind of like a mystical experience for them. A lot of these reports are kind of like shamanic experiences. And, you know, you go back in ancient literature and books, even things like the Bible, where it talks about, you know, people going out into desert locations and, and meeting higher entities. Now, you know, we today, we perceive them as angels, as aliens. In the past, it could have been angels, demons fairies in the Middle Ages, but it's almost like, <clears throat> excuse me, it's almost like certain locations almost lend themselves to places where people can almost like enter an altered state or an altered reality, and they have these shamanic type experiences that they interpret in ways that are relevant to their particular cultures. Now, one theory could be one of the most simplistic ones, the idea that if some sort of intelligence wants to interact with us, but doesn't necessarily want the whole world to know what's going on, it would pick locations where, yes, there might be people, but there's not going to be millions of people around, or even perhaps thousands. You know, it could just be tens of people in some little dusty town or, you know, some guy hiking through the desert. Um, I think that could be a possibility. Um, you know, I think also, I mean, you look at, for example, um, a lot of the Mexican stories, for example, um, you know, Mexican Indians, for example, um, a lot of their culture in terms of ingesting psychedelics and you know, certain types of plants, etc., to invoke um, altered states. You know, they go on in these same particular types of locations. They have you know interactions with what they perceive as to be higher entities. There isn't really a great deal of difference between somebody going out in the desert and saying, you know, Commander. Commander Zark of Planet 4X took me for a ride in the universe, around yeah. the universe. You know, they're talking about going out in the deserts, ingesting some particular substance, and then see one of their, you know, their ancient deities or whatever, revealing the secrets of the universe to them. So I think there's something about, I don't really know what it is, but I think there's something about desert locations and altered states and the isolated nature of these events that's um, isolated in terms of the fact that there aren't many people around, I mean, that somehow opens a doorway to whatever these things are. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that has, you know, obviously a bearing on the fact that they occur in the deserts. So. All right. And uh, her other question is, she cites an interview with Nick Pope uh, from, I guess, the recent UFO magazine. Uh, Jeremy Vaney interviewed him. Mm -hmm. 
and Nick Pope said uh, regarding crop circles that uh, most, if not all, are fake, and that the farmers are in on it. Uh, I, and, uh, let me make sure I get, <laughs> let me make sure I get her quote exactly. Yeah, she says said he thinks most, if not all, crop circles are fake, and that and this is in quotes quote the farmers are in on it. So I guess uh, that is what he said. Um, what do you make of that? Uh, have you read the interview? She wants to know, and and what do you make of that assertion? I guess you could say that that not only are the crop circles fake, but I think that uh, she's wondering really what you think. Uh, if yeah. the farmers are in on it, if there's some sort of yeah. going on with that in that regard. Yeah, well, I did read the interview. Um, I've got to say, you know, I've never actually honestly come across any evidence that a farmer was in on the story. You know, maybe Nick's uncovered other information, I don't know. But I've never personally come across anything to suggest that the farmer, you know, was actively allowing this to happen so, you know, he could profit from it by charging people to come in the field or whatever. What I will say is that I think there's a lot of a lot of misconceptions around the term crop circle hoaxers or crop circle fakers. Now, I know particularly over here, and this may be because, you know, Britain's on the other side of the world and people aren't necessarily fully aware of the crop circle culture, they're just aware of the circles, is that there are a lot of groups and teams of people in England who make these things and, and make them very well. A friend of mine, Matthew Williams, is the only person in the world to date who's actually been charged, arrested, charged and convicted for causing criminal damage in a field. In other words, he made a crop circle. <laughs> um, now, what's interesting about a lot of these human crop circle makers is if, if you ask them quite privately, and Matthew will discuss it openly, if you ask them privately, many of them have had weird experiences in their own formations that they made. And Matthew, in, for example, personally believes that the human crop circle makers aren't hoaxers or fakers. He believes that some sort of intelligence is manipulating them to make the formations, um, possibly to get people thinking about what the formations mean. Matthew believes that, it, that something is molding the minds of the crop circle makers and instilling paranormal activity, if you like, or a paranormal presence um, in these formations, which explains why people have weird experiences in them. Um, Matthew is a firm believer that there's a, a genuine puzzle at the heart of the crop circle mystery, but he doesn't think it's nuts and bolts spacecraft making them or beaming down, you know, laser type imagery or whatever to flatten the corn. He thinks it's almost like working with ancient magic. Mm -hmm. um, that something, you know, from, from ancient days has, has come back and is, you know, using us as a way to leave markings in the crop to get us to think about things. And he thinks that many of the crop circle make, makers actually puppets almost um, doing the will of whatever this thing is. Um, so I think that's the important thing to remember that, um, you know, the, the perception of these people as being hoaxers actually isn't correct. A lot of them, or some of them at least do, because they, they consider what they do to be like a form of artwork, yeah, that their canvas is corn. Mm -hmm. um, but when they, a lot of them began to experience weird phenomena, then they realized that things weren't quite as clear-cut as it seemed. And Matthew, for example, had a couple of very weird things happen where he designed one particular formation on his computer, went out and made it, only to find that another team had come up with a very, very similar idea the same night, and they made it a few miles away, not realizing that Matthew had made his, yet the formations were almost the same. It was almost like something had put the thought out there to make this formation. But in saying that, there are other cases, for example, that 
clearly seemed to involve something else. And I mean, ironically, uh, I mean, it's very kind of ironic that Nick should make that statement, Nick Pope, because I found at the British National Archives um, some old air ministry, British air ministry files from 1964, talking about how what sounded very much like a crop circle-like formation had been found in the north of England. It talked about how this circular patch of ground had been found and the grass had been laid over gently. Uh, classic crop circle formation, but obviously that term wasn't in use in 64. And the guy on whose land it was found um, contacted somebody else who in turn wrote to the government and described how the witness had seen this strange column of blue light hovering over the field huh. uh, the night before and then found this circle of flattened ground the next morning. Now, of course, this was years before the crop circle mystery kicked off, so there's no way this can be considered a latter-day hoax because we've got the original documents on file from 64 in the government archives. So quite clearly, you know, this wasn't somebody running around. This was something else. Yeah. Um, there are even reports um, in the old MI5 files, which is the British equivalent of the FBI, Second World War files, where the uh, British intelligence actually got stories from, ironically, Nazi intelligence and also Polish intelligence, where both Allied and Axis pilots flying over Germany and Europe in the Second World War reported seeing these weird circular formations in the fields. And British intelligence, MI5, at first thought that these were like, coded messages left for you know, Nazi bomber pilots. You know, this formation means fly northeast at midnight and bomb London or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it was an ingenious theory, but the important point is this offers a, um, proof that the modern-day crop circle mystery actually isn't a modern-day mystery. Yeah. You know, it isn't just, although I think there's a genuine human angle to it, which is very interesting and where it suggests people being manipulated, something else is going on as well and that definitely existed and was investigated by the government even, at least as back as far as the 40s. So. Okay, we'll move to the next writer's questions. This is the last batch of uh, writer questions. Um, this is from Leslie of the Debris Field. You probably know mm -hmm. Leslie, too. She, uh, she's a very prolific online writer. Yep. Um, the first question is, she's a native New Mexican. I believe that's the proper way to say it. So, uh, yeah, she's a native of New Mexico. She's fascinated by the Taos Bigfoot story. And uh, she says, although the Taos Indians and other Native Americans mm -hmm. have tales of a Bigfoot-like creature in New Mexico, I've always been skeptical of it. What do you think of this Taos Bigfoot story that you talk about in the book? I have a feeling kind of from what we've talked about and what you think is the source of all these uh, anomalies yeah. that probably what you're going to say. But she wants to know, you know, what do you think it was? Do you think it was a creature? Do you think it was mm -hmm. something that's native to the area or something that may have yeah. escaped from the government or, or some other explanation, which I think we'll probably get to. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the story that I've got in the book is about um, a guy who repeat, reported seeing um, this for want of a better term, a classic Bigfoot-type creature late at night um, in the vicinity of Taos. But what was weird about this was the fact that he said that it was quite clear that some sort of military helicopter appeared to be either monitoring it, shadowing it, or even chasing it with putting a bright light on it as if it was you know, literally in hot pursuit of it. Now, you know, personally, I don't go with the theory that this was some sort of escapee of, you know, from a secret laboratory or anything like that. Mm -hmm. I think, again, there's there's more to it. Um, you know, it's interesting that Leslie uh, mentions things like Native American Indians, etc. If you look into a lot of the, the legends and tales of uh, Native American cultures, a lot of them have these stories of these 
giant hairy men. But again, a lot of them also talk about these things having kind of magical properties or they were seen in some cases of being devilish-like creatures or there was something paranormal or weird about them. You know, they were kind of mystical and magical animals. Um, now, Towson itself is, you know, kind of a weird mystical, magical location. I guess it's kind of an apt place where if you're going to see something like that, that would be the place to see it. Um, again, you know, I don't, the problem is, you know, I hate to sort of not give an answer, but no, on the I other don't. hand, if you don't have an answer, yeah, yeah. you know, it's difficult to, to try and formulate something. You don't want to just say something for the sake of saying it. I think, again, there's no doubt people are seeing these things around Taos or all over the place. I think we need to look at the issue of whether or not the landscape, etc., would allow something to even live there in stealth and provide enough food. Um, that's a, one of the things people you know, often don't think about. So, you know, I think I try and investigate all these cases, but some of them, like the, the Taos one, is one where there's very little I could do beyond just report on it because it was such a, it was such a weird one. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, and then yeah, her second question is a really easy one, and, and one uh, that maybe you don't get too often. Nick had like, th- what's that? I said, uh oh. No, no, it's a good one actually. It's, a, it's kind of a fun one. So uh, it says Nick had like three books come out last year. He writes numerous blogs, does lectures, interviews, and other related things. Does he ever get free time to do something that is not esoteric related? And what do you and your wife do for fun? That's a very good question. The, uh, well, the things I can tell you about on air, you mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, I mean, we, we like to go out. We go and see bands. Where we live in Dallas, there's a couple of cool places, one called Deep Ellum, um, where there's like a lot of little bars and clubs and bands playing on a Friday and Saturday night. You know, so sometimes it's like cover bands and sometimes it's like local alternative bands and stuff like that. So we often go down there and see them on a weekend and... Um, you know, check them out sort of Friday night, Saturday night, and uh, do they do all that, and, uh, you know, just sort of hang around till they close and whatever. So that's one of our big things is music and just, you know, checking out some of the local scenes. And, um, um, you know, I'm, music, I suppose, is one of my other big interests apart from um, from sort of the paranormal, so to speak. So whether it's concerts or, you know, watching documentaries or endlessly buying CDs and loading things on the iPod and whatever. That's one of, one of the other ones. And, um, you know, she, she's like me as well, though. She enjoys kind of the, you know, the social aspect of going to some of these events. She's not overly keen on UFOs, uh, but sometimes she'll come with to, with me if it's like a paranormal event or something like that. But, yeah. Uh, but, you know, beyond that, we just do the, I guess, the normal things that, that everybody else does uh, for the most part. And uh, I like football, soccer. Well, I like football, <laughs> so <laughs> I watch I watch a lot of soccer. Um, whenever I'm back in England, you know, I always check out and go and see the local teams and whatever. And um, you know, so just I guess the, the normal things. I'm not sort of a all right, not too weird. <laughs> <laughs> that's a perfectly fine answer. We <laughs> all right. That's it for the writer questions and the questions okay. from my boy Richard in Wales. So. Uh, big thanks to Leslie and, and Regan and Richard for uh, sending these questions in. And obviously they're huge fans of yours because they were dying to send me questions. All, practically as soon as I saw that the email was sent, uh, I got the responses. So um, I'm sure they're going to be psyched to hear them. Um, yeah, well, I always read um, Regan's and Leslie's blogs, and there's a lot of good stuff there on them. So. Awesome. They'll be psyched to hear that. They're really up and coming in the world of mm-hmm. the paranormal. I'm psyched to have them a part of uh, the Banal of America team. 
we're sort of here at the home stretch now. Uh, the only other uh, isolated question, aside from what's uh, upcoming from you, is uh, what's last year there was a lot of talk about three men seeking monsters, uh, the movie rights being picked up. Is there any news mm -hmm. on that uh, story? I'm sure once they bought the movie rights, you probably you probably know as much as I do maybe about what's going on with that, but maybe you know a little more. So uh, any news no, on I, that? No, I actually don't know what it was. Um, I mean, it's, you know, if it happens, that would be great. All it literally was that, as you know, it was reported on the internet, was that Universal optioned it. Um, you know, film companies all across Hollywood option hundreds of films or books or manuscripts or film scripts per year. Mm -hmm. You know, and out of that, those hundreds, a handful get made. But no, it's 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 as it was a year ago. It's at the option option stage. That's it. So. And when there's, there's, oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that that's literally where it's at. It's still, as it was reported before, it's as, as an option. And do you know, I guess so, since it's just like an option, you probably don't know any, you probably don't like, I'm just wondering, like, if and, if and when they start to make the movie or anything, you don't know how extensive your involvement with that sort of thing will be. Oh, no, no, I mean, no, when when they talk about an option, it is literally that a film, I mean, not they just, just have, like, mine, the rights to make the movie of it. Yeah, I mean, this isn't just applicable to mine. It's, you know, with any book or manuscript or film script, when a company options it, it means if they want to do something with it, they have the right to do something with it. Yeah. Um, and it just depends on whether or not one day they say, okay, let's press the, the green button and, and go. Yeah. Um, you know, that's... That that's what takes it from an option to a production level, if you like. So um, you know, I mean, if it happens, great. If if not, you know, it, it remains as an option. So. Yeah, hey, it all works out. What's coming up for you? The year's practically over here. I'm sure you have big plans for 2008. Given how how many books you've got out already, I'm sure there, there's a book or two in the works. Um, and I'm yeah. sure you're you're speaking all over the place all the time. So I'm sure that's coming up as well. What's coming up for Nick Redfern in 2008 and beyond? Well, I guess the first thing that's going to happen at the start of 2008 is I'm going to wake up and take lots of aspirins after New Year's Eve. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that'll be the first thing. But um, joking aside, um, I've got, I'm working on a couple more books. Um, one which is like a localized study of weird animal reports in this place in central England I mentioned called the Canic Chase, which is kind of, again, like, almost like a, a Point Pleasant, Virginia type situation in the mid-60s where there's been a whole weird range of all sorts of strange phenomena over the last couple of years, all centered around this one particular large area of forest. So I'm working on a book on that, um, working on this werewolf book, and also one on official interest in alien abduction stories. This is one I've been chasing down that there seems to be this sort of think tank, or there was at least in, in the government in the 80s and through the 90s, that took a keen interest in in the whole alien abduction angle and try to get to the bottom of it. So I'm, I'm just trying to track down as many people and trying to convince a few people to speak about that oh, wow. um, as possible. And I've got a few conferences already lined up. Um, John Downs, who I went to Puerto Rico with um, in 2004, I always speak at John's Weird Weekend Conferences, it's called, in August in England every year. Um, so I'll be speaking. That's predominantly a cryptozoology conference. Um, held in the county of Devon, so I'll be speaking of that one in August. Um, in February, I've got a talk, just a weekend talk coming up at the um, Dallas Public Library. Um, doing quite a bit of writing for UFO magazine and got a few upcoming articles that are going to be published in January, February in um, 14 times. So, you know, I'm always trying to, trying to keep busy and uh, got a few TV ideas where I, you know, try and 
push a few ideas, sell a few stories to projects with TV companies, that sort of thing. And, you know, I think when you're a freelance writer, there's always this... Well, I, I get it anyway from time to time. People think if you write books, you know, you're kind of living in this palatial mansion and driving a Ferrari or whatever, <laughs> and, <laughs> which, you know, unfortunately isn't the case. Mm-hmm. You know, freelance writing, writing is like a very hazardous nightmare of a job at times, and, um, you know, you have to just... Uh, I mean, I do I, what I do because I have a passion for it, so I enjoy it. But, you know, at the same time, when it's your living, you have to sort of uh, project ahead and just, you know, just try and earn a living as well and hopefully gives people something back in return that, you know, is, is worth the money they're spending on it. But, uh, you know, it's a hazardous lifestyle when you, you know, you're predominantly just working as a freelance writer. So that's yeah. why I'm always sort of projecting ahead with things. And uh, But, I, you know, I enjoy it. I've still got the enthusiasm for it that I had when I was 20, you know, running around the woods and investigating this or jumping on a plane to be there to investigate a chupacabra or whatever. I, I enjoy it. And, you know, as long as I enjoy it, I'll, I'll, I'll keep on doing it and uh, hopefully get some answers to some of these things. So. Definitely, definitely. Nick, uh, I can't thank you enough. You've been tremendously generous with your time. Um, no, no problem. And I really appreciate it. And I'm sure the listeners are going to just die when they see a two-hour interview with Nick Redburn coming up. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm always happy to do this. It's no problem at all. Oh, awesome. And l- like I said, uh, you're already a superstar. You're well on your way to becoming an icon in the well, field. Well, that's of- true. I mean, what can I say? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. You make, <laughs> you make it so tough on me here. Uh, yeah, you're well on your way to becoming an icon in the field. The best way I can describe it is I really think that 20 years from now, we're going to look back and say, you know, Nick Redfern is the Brad Steiger of this generation in the esoteric world. And, <laughs> well, and thanks. That's, the, that's thanks, really the honest to God's truth. That's how I kind of feel about you. Your work is tremendous. covers so many different areas that I really appreciate that. I love somebody who can look at UFOs, cryptozoology, and not be afraid to, you know, look at something else, do mm. something else, look in one area, look in the other, and not just be like, you know, uh, tunnel vision on things. So uh, I have just, just a tremendous world of respect for you. I'm psyched oh, well, that we got Tim. you back I, on the show. I really appreciate that. Thank you. We've been talking about Memoirs of a Monster Hunter, a five-year journey in search of the unknown. It's from New Page Books. People can find it all over the place, I assume. I got it at Barnes & Noble and, uh, you know, they get yeah, it on by Amazon or all these different yeah. places. It's, it's very... Uh, very easily accessible. It's definitely worth picking up. If you want to know what it's like to be an esoteric researcher, you got to read this book. This gives you the best uh, idea of what it's like to be someone in the field and actually doing the research. There's tons of books out there that look at cases and look at mysteries. And, of course, this book looks at a ton of mysteries in and of itself. But also the book gives you an idea of what it's like to be the person looking into the mysteries. And as someone who loves the personal side of the UFO and esoteric field and the personalities. This book was just like a godsend. I really enjoyed it. I could keep babbling all day about how great you are. I'll just say thanks. <laughs> thanks for coming on the show, Nick. I really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully our paths will cross sooner than later. All right, well, thanks for having me on, Tim. I enjoyed it. Thanks. That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio. Big, big, super huge thanks to Nick Redfern for coming on the show and giving us so much time. Nick has a wealth of information on just about every esoteric mystery you can think of, so it's always fun to sit down and talk to him and really just go all over the place on the esoteric map. You can find out more information on Nick at his website, www.nickredfern.com, all one word, nickredfern.com. Check it out. Moving right along now, it's time for the final BOA Audio listener feedback of 2007, and it comes from our friend Rick, no hometown listed 
just Rick, but here's what Rick has to say. Dear Tim, good to hear your voice again for Season 3. Great job, by the way. I emailed you back in May about having Gian Cassar on as a guest. I feel having a show on the Bermuda Triangle as a subject would be unbelievable. One of the best. Let me know what you think about this. What's your thought on having a group on as a guest dealing with EVPs? For example, like GIS or Ghost Picks, Brendan Cook and Barbara McBeath. They have been on C2C lots of times and really do a good show. You may have heard them yourself, but the EVPs that they collect are really clear, the best that I have heard on the internet by far. Hope you get back to me on this. Take care, Rick. Well, thank you very much for writing in, Rick. I think I do recall reading your letter as part of a BOA Audio listener feedback towards the end of Season 2. I'm happy to report that we are in the process of tracking down Gian Kassar for a future episode of BOA Audio. He's a guest that I've wanted to have on the program for a while, and I've got the feelers out to him right now. I'm hoping to hear from him and hopefully tape an episode in the not-too-distant future. He's a hard guy to get a hold of, but we'll, we'll find him. Regarding the EVP guests, I've thought about it. I think maybe we will do something like that at some point in the future. I'm going to have to do a little more investigation into who the key EVP folks are outside of the GIS, or maybe try and get a hold of the GIS folks and have them on. I'm not a huge EVP fan, but there's always stuff to explore with regards to that phenomenon. There's always new questions to be asked that we haven't really delved into yet here on the program. Thanks for writing in, Rick. Thanks for the kudos and props. I appreciate it. Stay tuned to BOA Audio. We're going to have tons of great episodes coming at you in 2008. Hopefully, Gian Kassar. Hopefully, some EVP guests. I'm going to do my best. Rick actually picked the perfect time to write to me, as a matter of fact, because we're going to be on hiatus in January while I tape a ton of new interviews. I've got a lot of feelers out with guests and stuff, and I'm going to be just taping like a maniac all through January. I'll have more details on that at the end of the program. Rick did it, so can you. You can be a part of BOA Audio listener feedback. How do you do that? Two ways. Either write to boaaudio at hotmail.com or go to the banalofamerica.com website and click the contact button. Either one of those methods puts your correspondence in the BOA Audio listener feedback mailbag. Wrapping things up, I want to give huge, huge thanks to the fantastic BOA staff, Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V., and Tina Senna, not just for all your help on the website and the audio series, but for all your help and support throughout 2007. Part of the reason why BOA is still standing here as 2007 comes to a close is because of the BOA staff. Hats off to them. Thank you so much for another unbelievable year of contributions, support, and friendship. I'm also excited to announce, since we're not going to have a show next week, we're not even going to be able to mention it, so we'll talk about it now. We have a fantastic new writer joining the BOA staff starting this coming Friday, January 4th. Rochelle Hawks joins the BOA staff with her new weekly column, Medusa's Ladder. I'm very excited that she's joining the BOA team, and I'm looking forward to seeing what kind of stuff she's going to have via Medusa's Ladder. We've been saying it week in and week out here on the program, folks, and it's the truth. If you're only listening to BOA audio and you're not reading the columns of the BOA staff, you're only getting half the story. Banalofamerica.com. Make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. If you want to help support BOA, there's two ways to do it. You can go to the BOA store, buy some merchandise. We still have the Veiny Mania deal going on. Or, if you don't want anything from the store, you can simply go to BOA and click the PayPal button and make a donation via PayPal. 
No donation is too small, and all donations go towards keeping Banal of America and VOA Audio up and running and freely available for all of our great listeners the world over. Next week on the program, there is no program, my friends. Yes, I already kind of said that here earlier in the outro, but I'll extrapolate a bit more on it for you. Every year around this time, we like to take about a month off to recharge our batteries. As you can tell, December has been a crazy, crazy month here at BOA. You may have noticed as the audio show has sort of moved from Saturdays to Sundays. As such, and as we do every year, we're going to take some time to catch our breath, roll into the new year, tape a boatload of new episodes, and kick off the second half of Season 3 at the end of January. Of course, we'll have tons more information on that. We'll have some guest teasers and stuff like that as we get closer to the return date of Season 3. On that note, we don't have much left to say here, folks. Thank you so much for an amazing 2007. So many tremendous guests we've talked to. So many awesome researchers with fantastic points of view and a wealth of new information that has coursed through the proverbial airwaves via BOA Audio. I want to thank all the great guests who appeared on the show here in 2007. I've got a lot of big plans for 08, big projects, big, big stuff that I have on the horizon that hopefully come to fruition at some point in 2008. So stay tuned because the BOA franchise has just begun to take flight. And that is, of course, thanks to all of the great people who support and listen to BOA Audio and visit BanalofAmerica.com. May you have a wonderful and safe New Year's. You'll be hearing from me in 2008 as BOA Audio Season 3 continues. Until then, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.